People, please share. We got an excellent guest today. This man is no joke. He is a plethora of information. And you know I'm going to scratch <laughs> it out of him. Plethora is going, he's going to let it all out. What let he's been doing. And you're all going to want to learn how to get on Defected and break their chops to get your record signed. He's your guy. He's a great A&R man. He's a great dad. And he's a friend of mine. He's an excellent DJ, too. I've played with him many times. Thank you. And there was a time when he was truly, truly handsome. <laughs> when he was very young, the women were lined up around the block to come to see him. <laughs> I, used to always, I used to always break his, his chops about that. Like, dude, uh-huh. he always dressed in the sharpest track suits in those days. And I used to see him all over London running around. And then he got officially into the record business because he was in the record business, but he was a DJ and working at a record shop. And he'll tell you all about that great stuff. We're coming close. It's 6.55 in the UK almost. Come on, y'all. Get those numbers up. Help us tell a great story today. It's a wonderful moment to have this man on. Proud to call him a friend and I'm glad he agreed to do this. Not many feel comfortable about sitting in front of their camera and talking by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, by the way, I want to thank Karen. She got me this nice headphone Illuminati thing. <laughs> Illuminati. <laughs> Illumination setup. This is awesome. Look at this. For my birthday. Thank you, Karen. Oh, nice. I thank everybody. Also want to thank uh, Terry Brown is known as Terry Farley for the Faith Magazine sent over from your office. That's you right. Guys are, you guys are putting, I'm, that's why I put it up today, and I'm writing something for it, and they're also taking my DC LaRue True House Stories, oh. and they're going to use it. Oh, yeah. True oh, House wow. Stories is going further and further. They're taking the whole True House Stories and having it verbatim, yeah. uh, typed out, sent it back to me, edit it down for around the guys you're releasing the cathedral single and you can actually mention that as well but yeah. thankfully i'm i'm part of the writing staff of faith and then i have some of my heroes up there georgia Moroder, donna summer i figured i put some mix i'm gonna have tony prince from mix mag talking soon dmc right. cool. tony prince is gonna be on you know he's got a ton of stories oh god yeah and of course i would love anyone to please contact georgia Moroder and tell him we need him on true house stories because he is a legend of disco and a legend of our dance music. So, yep, we're getting close, guys. Come on now. Help us. Help us keep sharing. I keep seeing everybody coming in. The numbers are starting to go up. It's wonderful. And Karen, God bless her, Seamus, she's running around like crazy sharing it everywhere. Oh, yeah. She's a, she's a, work, she's a good one. She's, she's a, a horse. She's a working horse. Man, yeah. she is incredible. Yeah. Karen. I reached out to Nile Rogers today. I'm waiting to see if he'll give us a green light. All right. Hopefully. I don't yeah. know. Maybe maybe I get a kickback. I've spoken to <laughs> him many time, a few times. Maybe I'll get a knockback where they go. You're not ready yet for him. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> um, what time is it? 157, 657 UK. 
my You've God. been doing this a while now, Lenny, right? You've had an, quite a few guests about on. 10 episodes. What I did was two years ago, about a year and a half ago, I was doing it with my radio show. I do it on Wednesdays, and then I left it alone. Mm. And then COVID came. God bless COVID. Mm. Lockdown. And it was like, let's bring it back. Let's just try it. We need to give entertainment, education. Everybody's DJing on the internet, Facebook Live. Yeah. Like, do something a little different, something that's going to make me, I can, I wasn't even thinking about standing out, just wanted to call our friends, people we knew, and have these conversations. Yeah. And thankfully, one after another, it's been, yo, I saw this on True House Stories. I'm like, so this thing is starting to now become its own thing. Okay, cool. Yeah, so. Like I said, when I reached out to you, it was like, look, I'm trying it. It's it's a homegrown TV show. Yeah. Zoom. No product endorsements yet. <laughs> no big sponsorship yet. It's yeah. coming in the ground up. Even Vegas doing it. Morales said yes. Justin said yeah. Everybody's been saying yes. Oh, great. I think because they really, and I keep seeing the same thing. Everyone says, I'm very comfortable and relaxed with you doing the questions. Like, because yeah. what I asked, like I said, there's nothing, there's no harm, there's no ill malice. This is a place of what we would do if we were at a convention hanging out. Yeah, know? completely. Yeah, that's when we Both see each other, right? Yeah, because people don't get a chance to hear us really talk like this. No. You know, if you come to a panel, it's 37 minutes. Amsterdam is like that, 32 minutes. Boom, 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 we talk. And if you're not the host and you're just answering as a participant, you may be talking 10 or 12 minutes through the whole thing at maximum. Yeah. You don't really know. So this gives you a full place to to speak and, and take it. Well, I'm just, you know, the thing as well, it's like, because um, we know each other, we're all, I'm just as interested in you. Right. As you are in me, because yeah. you've got, I mean, you have to, someone's going to have to interview you doing this two house stories. I need someone to make the call to me and say they want to set it up. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's nobody's doing it yet because yeah. somebody asked me somebody at some radio shows have been asking me, but the questions they ask me on radio shows is oh when you did mystical journey it's never about yeah oh what happened when you worked for bear jones's studio when the room was empty or when you got fired from underground you know what i'm saying like yeah. i want people to ask me like those like what was the reason why i could tell you you know but look somebody will do it somebody's gonna interview yeah you. okay don't get to that point these happen. <clears throat> oh, Ridney says he's already done it. That's right. He did interview me. Hey, Ridney, everybody's oh. wow, a lot of people coming oh, on. Is... Excellent. Okay, it's seven o'clock. Let's do it. Okay. Welcome, people around the world in dance music and all styles of music to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. Thank God for COVID. It's kept me locked in. <laughs> Kept me quiet, but yet can't keep the lid on me. So it's making me come and doing it through Zoom. Each and every week, this show is building bigger and better. And I want to thank last week for Mr. Norman J. M.B.E., or should I say Sir Norman, as we all know him, because he's a wonderful gentleman and an elder statesman and sharing his time, almost three hours, shame, as he spoke. This is incredible. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. If, you know, if you know him. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very quiet, you know, yeah. Norman is just like that. But anyway, thank God. And to this week, we now shift the focus on 
Mr. Seamus Haji, who I know as one of the best DJs from the UK. He's done countless records that we've all played. He's A&R'd for some of the best dance music labels on that side, on your side of the pond in the UK. He's also picked records for me when he was working at the shops years and years and years ago. He would give me a, a slew. He said, Lenny, I know what you need here. Boom. <laughs> yeah. He was also a record promoter. He was also resident DJ at the Colony in London when I met him as a young lad. I just, you know, and he's just a dad. He's an AR man, remixer, producer, Dapper Don DJ, all the above. <laughs> <laughs> we like to welcome Mr. Seamus Haji from the UK, Defected Records, Slip and Slide and all. Welcome, Seamus. Thank you for lending your busy schedule and your time to us because when i caught you you were on vacation you were in between somewhere and he says i'll get back to you and i'll give you the date so you finally got it yeah so right. how's things how are you doing and how's let's start with just COVID. what's going on right now before we start this interview how is COVID been you've been handling with COVID? well basically <clears throat> this room this is my office at home and i've just been in here you know like for five days a week um working all hours so um yeah just a and ring and and actually i did just get into the studio recently so i had some projects that i'd started before covid and then i was like you know really busting to go in and finish them so i've just started working on some new productions and just music that's it because you know this year gigs are out the, out the diary I'm, there's no gigs this year it's just like making music signing music um, and I'm very lucky that, you know, I'm working with Defected Records and um, being paid a full-time wage to and sit here and work from home, you know. Wow. So did Defected keep most of the staff or just kept a few of the skeleton? What's the story with that so far? Um, well, they, they kept us all on. There were a few people were furloughed initially. Um, a few people have gone from the events team, as you can imagine, because we've got no events going on. So. Um, there have been a, a few cutbacks, but on the whole, I mean, we've got a lot of staff, you know, I think there's still about 40 members of staff um, in the company. So, um, yeah, the, luckily, like I say, the music side has been all right. It's just the events, you know, we, we're not really aiming for anything until um, Defective Croatia next summer in August. Okay. All right, so everyone, we thank him on that part. So we'll we'll touch Defected later and, you know, we'll get all that good stuff. But let's start with the first question I ask everyone officially. We know you have a mom and dad. We know you were created. We know you were born. <laughs> so as this young lad from grade school to this music scene, where does it begin for you when at a young age? Um, <clears throat> well, when I was really young, there was always music playing at home. Uh, to be honest, a lot of the music I was hearing growing up, I didn't really appreciate it when I was younger. And funny enough, now, as I've got older, I'm starting to appreciate it, right? But it was music. It was different music. It was like folk music. It was like Jerry Rafferty. It was Cat Stevens. It was all that kind of stuff. Um, and funny enough, there was a record um, that I didn't realise I was hearing at the time, but there's a, a track called Was Dog a Donut by Cat Stevens. So if you know about that record, you know that it was like, what, 1976? And it's like, you know, 
only a few people were making electronic records at that time. There was craft work doing their thing. And then for some reason, Jerry Rafferty, this, this folk producer or folk artist, just had an idea to just do this bug out track on the album. And I used to hear that when I was a kid. I was probably about eight years old at the time. And it was a few years later when Jellybean Benitez did a version of it. I had this weird, like, deja vu moment. Like, I know this, I know this record, you know? And um, so that goes back to my mum and, and the music she was playing, which it, I think it influenced me. I grew up on good music. That's what I'd say. It wasn't necessarily what I got into of my own accord, which was black music. You know, then I started to find my way and I got into soul and funk and all that stuff. But um, it was it was good music. It was song based and it was good quality. So we heard Cats in the Cradle of Silver Spoon. Man yeah. on the Man in the Moon. <laughs> yeah. And Jerry Rafferty, all that stuff, you know, that is great music. I just didn't really I didn't really dig it when I was younger, but now I, I can appreciate it. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible because everybody I, everybody I interview from your side is in the same boat. UK right. soul, American soul, that's what was being played around that same era. You hear Motown, you hear people saying the same records. So yeah. it was interesting that it was happening the same over here, the same way. Yeah. It was a big thing when that time black music was just exploding. Motown was all over the place. Motown was all over the radio. So that was a big game changer for, for someone like me listening to music, you know, in my mom's house. So I could understand what you're saying. Yeah. So did you have any musical formal training, any instruments or anything? No, nothing. I, I remember when I was in school, I was I always wanted to learn how to play the drums. Um, for some reason, I never did. And, I, and, and looking back now, I wish I had you know, learn how to play the piano or something. And I think it would have helped me in a lot of ways. But um, no, I never did. I wish I had. Yeah. When did this, when did this love of disco, house, all this begin for you? The, the bug of DJing, everything. Oh, man. Um, the DJing, <clears throat> I think it, well, it was, you know, early 80s in the UK was what, this is the thing. So things work differently over here. I think when I was probably like 12, 13, 14, we had the whole hip hop and electro funk thing hit the UK. So all the records that Arthur Baker was making, you know, Tommy Boy Records, um, you know, Hashim, Navish the Soul and all that stuff, you know, Man Parish, um, that hit the UK. And that was like super exciting. So if you're a young teenager in the UK and that stuff was coming over, it, that was the big thing. So it was a hip-hop and very much electro-funk. So that's what got me excited and got me into dance music. And you either wanted to play records or do graffiti or body pop and break dance. And um, just some of my close friends were already buying records. And um, one of them, his older brother, had quite a, a big, what to me seemed like a big record collection. It might have been 100 records, <laughs> maybe 200 records. But it seemed amazing to me. And so he was playing me records and then then he started to play me records that were on South Soul records, like the dub mixes of things, you know, like Love Break or things like Heavy, Mon Heavy Vibes, Montana Sextet and Extra T's haven't been funky enough. So I started getting into the dub versions of, of these kinds of records. And, and next thing I started to try and do like 
pause button mixing. We used to do a lot of that stuff. So what you would do on a reel to reel, we would do it on a, a tape machine and just rewind the record and do these pause button mixes. And and then it just led to me trying to learn how to mix two records together. So it was all very uh, primitive. I had like a portable cassette machine and I had like a music center and I'd plug the microphone into the music center, press record on the tape deck, play a record, but then I'd play a record on the cassette and I'd mix it somehow. And it was all belt drive as well. There was no pitch control. So it was like hands-on, slowing the deck down or speeding it up. So I was basically, from the age of about 14, I was just fascinated by the art of mixing two records together. That's what did it for me. Um, and then, and I remember getting a tape. We got this tape in 1984. I don't know, my friend got a tape from New York and it was Tony Humphreys. And it was a Kiss FM 90 minute commercial free master mix. Right. You know? And he was playing things like Houdini Friends and um, Shango, um, you know, Cremsicle, No News is Good News, Jelly Bean, the Mexican. So it was very much like Latin freestyle, um, like a hip hop electro soul. Yeah, it was all that stuff and electro funk. And he was mixing his stuff up. And again, I was just, um, I, could, I just was amazed at the way he was mixing records for two or three minutes. And that's what I wanted to do. And, I, and then by 1985, when I was like 16, um, yeah, I got DJing on the, on the London sound system scene. So I was playing with Norman Jay. So Norman Jay was, um, he had Good Times Roadshow, and there were other big sound systems. So what, what it was in the UK in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, we had all these um, reggae sound systems. So like Norman Jay, you know, his brother Joey had a reggae sound system. And reggae was really popular at a point. And at some point in the 80s, people wanted to start to hear other kinds of music. And they wanted to hear soul music. And a lot of the reggae sound system turned into soul sound systems. So, so let me ask this question. Yeah. The demographic is English, we know. But what's the cultures that were in front of you guys with the dub sound system and you're doing? What was the crowd like? Oh, it was a black crowd. All black? All black. All, I mean, when I went to school, I. I I got in with black guys because I went to, when I went to secondary school, I just remember meeting this one black guy at the bus stop who I knew vaguely. We'd play football together once and um, went to school with him. And next thing I know, at lunchtime, I'm with this guy and then some other guys that he knew. So I was there at lunchtime hanging out, I don't know, with about eight black guys. I'd never even hung out with black guys before, but it just happened. And then I started hearing the music they were playing, which was like a lot of dub reggae or soul. Um, and I, I, that's what got me into the music. And when I started playing with the sound systems, there were a few, you know, you get a few white guys there, you get some white girls, but it was a very black scene, the whole sound system scene, you know. And Good Times were a big sound system. There was Rap Attack, there was Mastermind, and, and you'd, you'd have, like, these illegal parties. And, um, and the way that I got into DJing, I never wanted to be a DJ. I never planned to be a DJ. I just like mixing and scratching records, right? And by the mid-80s, I was mixing um, soul with hip-hop and stuff like that. And so did you have a did you have a code name like Scratchmaster? Oh, yeah, I was called Slick. DJ Slick. I just thought the name Seamus was ridiculous, and I thought the name Seamus Hardy was even more ridiculous. So I was like, <laughs> DJ Slick. And I was like 16, 
probably had about i don't know 50 records and what was your I gear give us your okay. gear what was your gear what trainers were you wearing shell tops what were you wearing come well, on well back then it would well we were what we were then i don't know if you've heard this term lenny but we probably would have been called casuals no i never heard it like that but what's casuals mean so yeah. casuals is um it came from the football scene so all the football a lot of the basically the, i wasn't a football hooligan but a lot of the guys that were in the sort of football firms the guys that went to the football matches but not to watch football they went to fight the other firms it's crazy and they were quite naughty right so they'd go to all the away games abroad and what they would do is they would nick clothes they nick sportswear so they'd be nicking like fear fear um feeler um you know to sergio Toshini, all this stuff right they'd be nicking it coming back to the uk and wearing all this stuff and it was casual wear it was either your know, pringle jumpers or fred perry's or the stuff from abroad so it was it was all casual wear so they were called casuals so we would have been they were the kind of clothes that we wore um and it would have been yeah maybe a night trainers and it would have been Hango? no 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 not no, that no run dmc look no god no no um okay. but anyway we went to we went to this party and it was in a, it was an illegal house party literally where i grew up in camberwell and um there was these older black guys, you know, in the mid twenties, I was like 16 and they had techniques decks, which I didn't own. I never touched one in my life. I couldn't afford them. And, um, they were back then a lot of the DJs in the eighties couldn't mix. So they would just blend with the crossfade. It would be all completely out of time. So my friends went up to them and said, listen, our friend, our mate can mix a scratch. Can you let, can you let him on? And, um, they had these boxes of records and I went through the records. And I, I saw some records I didn't own, but I saw this one record called maze uh, the band was maze who we all know it's a track called twilight it's like an instrumental club track kind of mid-tempo i thought oh that's instrumental i pulled that out and then i kept going through and then i saw sos band just be good to me the acapella i thought oh there's an acapella i never mixed these two records together at all i put one on put the acapella on and i sort of i, I, I even then i was struggling to get the acapella in time but what i was doing was i was cutting and scratching this acapella and these guys were just amazed because they couldn't mix and they hadn't seen this sort of thing before. And then they took my number. And the next thing I know, I, do, I joined the sound system. And then we were playing in front of like 2000 people at one of these big um, all days of the century. That's what it used to call them. And uh, Aswad had been performing, big PAs were on. And, um, and then I had to go on and mix and scratch. I had to operate for the sound system for like an hour and my hand was shaking um my hands have never shaked since that's the only time i see my hand shake um but it went well and i did my thing and that was how i got into djing so i never planned to be a dj it was just because of my friends who pushed me into it so dj slick was born dj slick yeah <laughs> <laughs> how long yeah, all, my, all so my records have no sign they all they all say slick on them so, so, how, long, so how long did slick keep that slick sound kicking uh about two years two years you know and they were really fun times i mean just to give you an idea what was going on because norman jay was playing on a similar scene so so we would have been playing soul records and we would have played james brown stuff like that but there was also we didn't know about it at the time but we were playing records like serious intention you don't know or russ brown gotta find a way 
or Strafe set it off or Colonel Abrams, music's the answer. We didn't know about this music that was going to come out. To us, it was just art. It was like up-tempo R&B, right? And now we look back and think, oh, that was the, that's what led to Garage and House, basically. But we just didn't know that at the time. And I guess the stuff was going on in New York at the time and there was stuff going on in Chicago, but we weren't aware of it. So it was just before house music had hit the UK, you know? Wow. Yeah, because yeah. at that same time, you got to realize Jellybean in New York was playing at the Funhouse. A lot of us were playing that music. It was all intertwined. For example, like Hip Hop, Bebop, Man Parish, all those records were going yeah. on at the same time. We were all playing that. Yeah. Electro, you guys are calling electro. We're just calling it dance music. We're not calling it electro. That, I oh, really? Time. No, we never called it electro over here. I don't remember hearing that called. That was what we, yeah, it was electro funk in the UK. They called it buggers music because the buggers at Funhouse who dance, these two up rocking yeah. records that, that were anthems at that particular club, you know, with Jelly right. Bean or Tony Smith. Then, you know, Larry LeVan was playing some of that stuff. Yeah. Some of the more of the blacker records where Jelly Bean wouldn't play them. But Funhouse had a big following. It was basically a bridge and tunnel crowd of uh, Latino and Italian mixed with some of the uptown Manhattan crowd. So right. they didn't have many black kids in there. It was more of a Spanish and Italian and neighborhoody, you know, very hoodie feel. Like, you know, yeah. they knew each other from the neighborhoods. Yeah. And they were bad on the dance floor. It was crazy. So I can understand all that. Yeah. What was going on in New York was going on in the UK a little differently. So it's interesting to hear that perspective. Wow. So from slick to the big sound systems, mm. Where does it take this? Where do you go from there? Um, then I, around that time, um, I started working in a record shop in Camberwell, funnily enough. Um, and um, that kind of, around that time, I, I, I wasn't really thinking about working in the industry, but it, like, um, I liked working in a record shop. You know, I'd, I'd been at, I'd been at college and the idea was I was going to go on to do graphic design uh, and do a degree and all this sort of stuff. And I was doing A-level art, but I was already DJing. I was working part-time in the shop and I just kind of lost interest in that side of it. Right. And so um, I went to work full-time at a record shop called Red Records in, um, in Soho. And the way that I got the job was I went to work in the shop. The, the, there was a branch in Brixton. Um, this was around 1989 and um, I knew the guy that ran it because he used to be in a sound system. So we used to DJ together like back in the day. So I knew him, went to work there. They didn't have any places. He said, listen, there's that, we need somebody in the West End shop. The West End shop was the shop. That was the place to be. Um, where exactly that, was that shop? Do you remember the address of where that shop was? I think it was Beak Street. Yeah, Beak Street. Um, in Soho, and at the time, there's a guy called Abby Shah that was running the shop. Oh, yeah. Used, used to run Bluebird. Um, Trevor Nelson was working there, right? This is, and he was obviously really well known. This is before Kiss FM went legal. Um, Ricky Morrison was there, who went on to do MS Productions. Another guy, Jeremy Newell, who was really well known. Um, Lloyd Daddybug, he was on Kiss FM. He, went to, he became an AR at EMI at some point. Um, so like a really strong team of people. And then I, I worked there. So 
that was how and then i started to get an insight into the industry basically um because just like everybody would, you know you're in the west end everyone you know pete tong would come in there andrew weverall would come in there norman jay would come in there just everybody came to that shop just because who the people that were there and there were other shops in the west end as well and they all had their clientele but you know it was just a good insight and also i became aware of um the value in promos you know that was the big deal if you worked in a record shop it was all about getting really upfront music and the djs who came in wanted that really upfront music so having that connection to the record labels is really important because an a and r guy could come in there with 50 copies of a record and you'd be like fantastic we've got all these promos none of the other shops have got them and then he would normally trade that for you know new records so he's just doing his a and r trying to be aware of what's out there and then we get a load of promos and at some point i started wondering about being that guy at the record label like, i wonder what it's you know what it's like to, to sign records and have that kind of influence so it started putting the idea in my head you know right and who who's the first record company that you stepped to or should i say maybe on the outside because i remember back in the day a lot of our friends were working at the shops and what they were doing is like we called junior a and ring remember that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so so they <laughs> would, junior junior a so you're looking yeah. for records on the outside and you're bringing them into the labels so yeah. were you doing any junior a and ring or you were invited corporate level right away what what was that how did that transpire um so funny enough when i was at um there was a point when Abby and Ricky and those guys, they went to set up a record shop called Catch a Groove, right? Yes. And I think that was around 92. And by about 93, 94, something like that, um, I went to work there part-time. And um, that was like a kick, that was a shop, every, that was a kick-ass shop. Everybody was going there, right? Um, we all went, we all went. And when we came into town, everybody stopped to Catch a Groove. Yeah, that was a shop. And Ricky lived above the shop and then like, you know, if Benji Candelario flew into town or Danny Buda Morales and they needed to put their head down for a bit, they'd go into Ricky's bedroom <laughs> and sleep for a bit, right? And um, it was quite, family. it was great. For, That's some family stuff there. That's what I'm yeah, talking about. And, and that was, a lot of um, connections were made that way, you know? So um, we were getting a lot of music, you know, like, especially then, it was around 94, 95, uh, 94, I started my residency at the Satellite Club. That was at the Coliseum. Um, there was I said the colony before, excuse me, the Coliseum. Yeah, the Coliseum. <clears throat> so I was resident, I'd got a residency there. And, um, and I'd got a residency there in a really weird way, right? There was, a, there was a club night called Peach in London promoted by Kiss of M, which was like a sort of quite a banging UK house night. But they had a second room that was for more chilled out music, but they didn't have a DJ for it. And the girl that was promoting it, a girl called Nikki Smith, um, she used to play my cassettes in that room all night long. I had these mixtapes, which I used to sell in the shops. That I, I, they were selling different record shops around town. She would just play my mixtapes, right? So she said, and I went in the club once. She said, look, all these people are dancing to your mixtapes. And she said, right, I'm going to open another club night. And when I do, I'm going to make you the resident in the second room. Um, so I was already doing that. So I was DJing. I'd, I'd started writing for magazines as well. You know, like I was writing for Music Mag at the time and I'd, I'd covered other people 
writing for magazines like DJ Mag and Touch Magazine. Again, because I knew it was a good way of getting promos. You know, it's like, oh, I'll get loads of music up front, which is great if you're a DJ, right? So I was making all these little connections. Um, and I'd already, and I'd started messing around in the studio making music. And I'll tell you one thing, it was funny though. I went, to, <laughs> there's a guy called Mel, um, who owns Champion Records, right, in the UK, who have been going for a long time and from signing hip hop in the mid 80s. And obviously their big record was um, Robin S, Show Me Love. And they're still running today. And they've got Madhouse, which is a um, Kerry Chandler's offshoot that goes through them. Um, I think he came in, into he came into a catch a groove. This is around '94, <clears throat> and he said, um, "Oh, come and see me in the office." So I went to see him, and he was basically offering me a junior A and R role, right? Because he's like, "You're DJing, reviewing for magazines, you work in the shop part time." So I said, okay, I'll come see him. But then over the course of the weekend or whatever at Catch a Groove, <clears throat> they had to make a little cutback on staff, right? And I was last in and first one out. So they said, look, we've got to let you go because we've just got too many staff or whatever. So I said, okay. So I went to see Mel and, um, and yeah, we had a chat, but he just said, oh, I can't take you on there because I heard you're not in the record shop anymore. He <clears throat> was just cold. And... I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. So that was the first time when I didn't, I didn't look for it, but somebody had shown interest in me, you know. Um, and then I went from there, I went to work for um, Uptown Records, which I think is when you and I met. In no, the I met you, no, I met you. No, I met oh, no, you. it was Satellite Club we met, yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we met, okay, sorry, yeah, we met before, that was it. Gary Dillon, Gary Dillon, I sat with you in Gary's office and released the pressure. Released the pressure, that's early, right. Half was there in them in the early 90s and I sat with you and talked. That's yes. when I officially met you. But in I played basement. with you already a few times already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it was right. Yeah, catch a Groove closed down. They opened up Release the Groove. Um, and same thing happened there, right? I mean, must be me. I was there part-time. <laughs> You're the closer? You're the closer <laughs> of the place. <laughs> Wait, 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 hold on, wait, 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 let's make sure we clip this right. In quotations, you bring Seamus, he closes up the place. Yeah. No, okay, sorry, so, get the story. Abby said to me, oh, you know, because <clears throat> he was, there's somebody else who's there part-time. I don't know what it was, but he just said, look, I've got too many members of staff, I'm going to have to let you go. I said, okay. So I went to Uptown, and then I went to work there full-time, and I was like assistant manager, and... Um, Everything was going well, you know. I was playing the Saturday. I was playing the Saturday club every weekend, so my name was on Kiss FM all the time. Oh yeah, I remember that. Um, Tonight, a, Saturday night, Shameless yeah, party. Yeah, and, and everyone was playing there, you know. Like so, we had, you know, like you would have played there, and like Hector Romero and Ted Patterson, and um, we had the UK DJs like Paul Trouble Anderson and Bobby and Steve. We basically had everyone played there, apart from maybe the top four or five names, like you know. Because we couldn't afford them at the time, you know, if it was Louis Vega or Morales, because um, we had a bit of a capped budget. But everybody came there and played at the club, and it was a great, um, yeah, it was a great night, great crowd. Um, and I was making records, so I did this record called Race of Survival, um, which I know you like. Um, and that was like there was a big buzz on that record. Well, tell me the story out, of that record. What, who, who's involved? And what label was it again? And what, what, how that transpired for you? Because that's one of the first things I remember seeing. Yeah. Like, wow, this really now it took you from just being the DJ now to being 
a producer driven DJ? Yeah. So, um, all right. All right. So this is how it happened, right? So Nikki Smith was the, the lady that promoted the satellite club. She had a friend who worked at Polydor and manifest, was it manifesto? Polydor anyway, it was Polydor. So she had a friend, female friend, and the female friend had a boyfriend who was Steve McCutcheon, otherwise known as Steve Mack. Not Steve Mack Room Masters, but Steve Mack as in does everything for Simon Cowell, is one of the most successful producers in the UK today, right, on a pop level. Um, so she said, um, why don't we get you two together? So this is around 93. He'd already made some dance records, right? He did a version of um, Never Let Us Slip Away, the Andrew Gold record, um, under this name, Undercover, with another DJ, this guy called John Jules, who's a soul DJ. Uh, know, John, nice guy. Yeah, lovely guy, right? Don't know how that came about. There was John Jules, there was Steve Mack, and I think another guy called Darren Pierce, who was like a UK house DJ. And, um, <clears throat> and he did some other stuff as Gems for Gem, which again was, I think he did it with Darren Pierce. So Steve Mack had this dance side to him, but he also could do the, the pop stuff. So I went in the studio and he was just starting to produce boy bands because he went on produ to produce Westlife and all this stuff. He did some, you know, he's, made, he's done really well. But he was producing this, um, this German boy band, right? Like three white German guys. And I've gone in the studio to meet him and there was a black guy in the booth. I don't know if it was Wayne, is it Wayne Hector? There's a guy that he co-writes with. He was in the booth singing and I, he said, oh, I'm producing these guys. He showed me the picture and I said, like, he doesn't look like one of the members of the band, but <clears throat> what he was doing, what they did on with a lot of that pop boy band music is, they get a bit of soul in there with the, the backing vocals. Yeah. So this guy was adding that vocal. So basically like, oh. He's doing his thickening it up and making it sound plush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, giving, yeah. It that, giving it that finish. Yeah. Soul sound. Yeah. Which you wouldn't know about. You wouldn't know about. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then another time I remember going to the studio and there was this other black guy in the studio, in the, in the booth. And I said, who's that? He said, the guy called Stephen Granville. And I knew the name Stephen Granville because he made a record with Booker T on a Zuli. I think he did a cover version of um, um, Sylvester's, you know, You Make Me Feel My Real. So I knew the name and I was like, oh, right. Yeah, I know it, this guy can sing. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I just kind of, uh, earmarked it, I suppose. So then Steve said to me, listen, why don't we get the ball rolling? He said, I've got this remix I want to do, right? I think it was Lindy Layton or someone like that, King Candy Dolphin or someone, one of these little UK pop singers. And we went in to do this remix and I had like an MPC 60. So I brought my MPC 60 in. I was like programming my beats on it. And I was really influenced by obviously Kenny Dope, Roger Sanchez, these guys at the time. And um, got some beats going. And then I just was, you know, typical DJ with a box of records going, well, I like this and I like this sound and I like these chords. And it was all very, <clears throat> it was kind of influenced by CJ McIntosh, I think Master at Work, a bit of Roger Sanchez at the time. So we did this track and we had a vocal and he just turned around and he said, this is really good. He said, this is actually too good to give away. Why don't we keep it as an instrumental? And I was like, all right, okay. And then I went, oh yeah, all right. What about that? Um, that guy, Stephen Granville, why don't we give it to him? Gave it to Stephen Granville, and he wrote 
race of survival, which is grammatically incorrect because it should be race for survival, right? Not race of survival. We didn't think about it at the time, but it's race of survival. Sounds Here good, Sounds yeah. good. I never questioned the grammatics of it. Ever. Grammatically incorrect. So he wrote that song and we were like, he must have sent it on a little cassette and we listened and thought, bloody hell, this is really good. He was like, <clears throat> I'm not being funny, he's like Byron Stingley. And I would go as far to say is possibly a better singer, right? I don't want to get any flack for that because I love Byron Stingley. But he was in that range, falsetto, but just he is really bloody good. So anyway, we got him in and um, Steve Mack helped him out. But there was a little bit we changed on a, a bridge or something. But basically the song was there. Did the song. And then at the time, it was like, you know, I was, I was DJing. When you met me, I wasn't even DJing as Seamus Hardy. <laughs> my, name, my DJ name was just Seamus. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's like yeah. Seamus. It was just Seamus, right? So, because there was no one else. There was no one else DJing just as Seamus. So, well, where does um, the name Seamus come from? What's the background of Seamus Hardy? My mother's Irish. Okay. That's a very Irish name. I mean... Either old men or dogs are called Seamus, basically. You don't hear many. <laughs> That's it, right? And my dad is, he's Indian Iranian, but basically Haji is a Muslim name. So that's where that comes from. So it's a real mixture. I'm waiting to meet a Muhammad O'Reilly, because that might be the equivalent of my <laughs> name, the other way around. Gotcha. The um, so what I'm trying to say is that we just didn't think it would be cool to put out as Seamus and Steve. So we, we came up with this name of, sons of soul and i wanted to sign the record to i don't know like a strictly rhythm or somebody like that the problem is i'd made the record in steve's studio so it was kind of like technically he was saying well look i want to put out on my label and he had this little label well he, i think he started a new label called rockstone um so it was kind of like it went out on his label and wasn't really what I wanted to do, but that's kind of how it went. And then it didn't come out. This record didn't come out for a year, right? Which was really good. It didn't come out for a year because the guy that was Stephen Granville was managed by somebody and his management were basically uh, in disagreement about the publishing splits. And this went on for about a year, right? Believe it or not. And what I did is <clears throat> I cut two acetates and I posted one to Tony Humphreys and then I gave the, I handed the other one to Paul Trouble Anderson. So they were, and these were 12 inch acetates and I put a note on there explaining stuff and whatever, like what it was. Da, 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 da. So I'm not joking, but those two DJs, they were probably the only two DJs who had it apart from me for a, not a year, but I'd say for about <clears throat> six to eight months and they played it religiously. And then I started giving to a few other people like Bobby and Steve and a few friends and whatever. Um, and it just built this buzz. There was just this buzz about the record because you couldn't get it, you know. And it was like that those days. Not like now. You hear something and it's out the next week. Um, but it was that thing about having it on acetate and you couldn't get hold of it. So it came out. It, sold, it did probably sold about 6,000 copies at the time. And I remember <clears throat> Frankie Knuckles picked up on it and he put it on a a Ministry of Sound Sessions comp, which was quite a big deal back then. So it kind of came out and it did its thing, but I'd wished it, personally, I wished it had come out on a different label, you know, but it was a great record and it was a great record to be involved in because it just showed me the process of making a record from start to finish and that 
also working in a team where you're like, I'm a DJ, or I can program beats, but I can't play the piano. Steve Mac can, and we had a really good engineer and, it, and a great singer and the song was written. So it just, I got in, I, it fast tracked me into that world of making a record with a really good team of people. So, so basically, as we all say, now you're thrown in head first and you learn re real fast on how to, the process, because it just, un, it just develops as you're going. You know, yeah. this one's doing that, this one's doing that. But how important was Tony Humphreys and Trouble? Oh. Tell, explain that to people, the Kiss, the yeah. Kiss Master Mix. What the hell was that like back um, in that time? Well, you know, like I... Both them on Kiss, America and England. <laughs> yeah. I mean, being in the UK, around when I heard that mixtape, as I say, that was around 1984. Um, I hadn't really heard mixing like that before. Um, it was just so smooth, smooth blending. I mean, there was one guy in the UK called Froggy, who was a bit before my time because he was very much in the late seventies, very early eighties. He was really good technically as well. Um, and 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 I think when um, years down the line, when Tony was like, you know, the man on the house scene, it's just the fact that he had so much upfront music, and you weren't going to be able to get your hands on it for a very long time. You know, Paul Trum and Anderson the same, like. People would come and play. People would come and play the lot with him. Obviously, give him acid, give him dats. He would cut acetates and be playing stuff for months and months before it came out. Sometimes a year, and it was just that exclusivity where it's good, really good music, and it's like you can't get to hear this unless you hear that DJ play it. So it was enormously uh, influential. I remember when he had um, when he was on when Trouble was on Kiss, and he he was playing um, My Desire by Mira produced by Blaze, you know, and it was just him playing that. And then funnily enough, because we, you were asking me about how I got to work at record labels and I told you about the way it didn't work out with Champion. Um, but when I got to work for Slip and Slide, it was just weird because I got the job and I inherited that record. So they'd already signed it and I, I, I got to work there. And, um, and then we signed it to, to Virgin. And that record got signed because of Paul Sherwell Anderson. You know, on the strength of him playing it every week. Yeah, yeah, he was just break. You know, that was like properly breaking records. Same with Tony Humphreys. Um, so it was from an A and R point of view, is really important. And um, yeah, just like getting back to what you were saying about um, how I got into the industry, and I kind of went off then because I was just talking about making records and stuff. Um, I was, I guess what I was doing was I was ticking all these boxes of things that I was doing and I didn't think about going to work for a record label. And then by about 1998, when I was at Uptown Records, um, Jim Ingle, who was the A&R at Slip and Slide, who'd signed the Lacey Hideaway, it was just this New Jersey garage record. Um, I think it was on Freddie Shannon's, Freddie Shannon's um, Shelter label, or was it, I can't remember the label it was on. But he signed that and he got DeLacy to remix it um, and went and it got signed to Deconstruction. And um, because of that, he got poached by RS. And when he went to went for RS, um, he would have spoke, he basically spoke to Peter Harris and just said, Look, I think you should get Seamus for the job to come and be AR label manager at Slip and Slide, right? I had no idea. But when I used to do my reviews for um, Music Mag, 
um, there were two labels that were my favourite labels, right? So within the major label group would have been A and PM because Simon Dunmore was there, and he just signed really good American house music and um, Slip and Slide when it came to UK independence. So there was my favourite UK major that was A and PM. My favourite UK independent was Slip and Slide because they just signed great music. So I was always giving them great reviews and. <clears throat> I was DJing at the Satellite Club and then also, yeah, I'd done that Sons of Soul record and I was doing some other bits for cult records. Um, in the US, I did a, a version of Go Bang, um, which was like, did really well. So, you know, I was ticking all these boxes and then um, uh, Peter Harris, the guys that slipped and slide, someone rang me and said, look, can you, we just want to pick your brains. You want to come in for a chat? So I went to Labbert Grove to slip and slide and we were having a chat and they were just asking questions and then uh, in, this is one afternoon i went home and then that evening i got a call from peter saying you've got the job and i said what job he said well we want you to be the a&r label manager at slip and slide jim ingles leaving and i'm like i had no idea about that i wasn't trying to get the job i went around to his house that evening and um we're having a little chat and that was it so that was like 1998, it was a really pivotal time. It was the beginning of 1998. It was like literally the end of the year. And I mean, I, and I just turned 30. So, you know, I wasn't like a spring chicken. I wasn't like early 20s. I was like, I'd been around for a while and I, I didn't really know what I was, or I didn't have any plan. I was just like making music, DJing. I just loved doing what I was doing. You know, I was working in a record shop at the time. <clears throat> and um, so I had no real, I never, you know, I didn't sort of think, right, I've got a career path in mind, but it, do you know what I mean? It just kind of act, happened accidentally. It was somebody yeah. else saying, you might be good for the job. So you, by, by accident, it's found you. Now you're in the seat. Okay. Yeah. So where do you begin? So I began by, well, it was mad, right? Because to, to, when you were signing music back then, you were either going around the record shops and trying to pick up some sort of unsigned white label, or you might look at like a US record, like the, the Lacey Hideaway and think, oh, it's come out, it's done its thing, let's license it but, and remix it and try and like, you know, transform it. Um, or, you, or you get tapes sent into you, you know. But it's really weird because one of the first cassettes I got was from this guy, this, two, this guy called Marco, who worked with this guy called Dave. And they said, oh, we, we heard that you're the A&R here now because... And we really like what you do. We've heard you DJ. Um, and we follow you. I had a column in Music Mag at the time, which Ben Turner was running. And it was a big magazine. So I used to write for the US Garage column, right? And the Spoonie used to do the UK Garage column. So I would have reviewed your records, you mm -hmm. know, all the time. Loved what you were doing at the time. And um, so they liked, they liked my column, right? And... Um, they gave it they had this tape and they played to me and it was kind of like mood to swing it was very much on that mood to swing tip really well produced and at the, this guy marco i don't know what happened he sort of slipped out of the equation and it was just i was talking to this guy called dave but his name was dave taylor right so dave taylor um went on to become switch went on to produce mia went on to produce do do stuff for beyonce um went on to do all the major laser stuff, right? 
But it all started with this cassette and he came in to see me and he was like, yeah, it was like, he was a real geezer as well. He's still, he's a real proper geezer. He's like, oh, all right, you know, he's effing and blinding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, yeah, oh, I need a studio and I want to I move in the area. I said, listen, if you move into the area, we've got a little room here. We had this little room that was just covered with carpet. It was like a, a listening room, listening booth, but it was re- quite well soundproofed. I said, listen, you can have that room. 24 hours, it's yours, but just give me first dibs on whatever music you make. So the first name he set up under was um, Solid Grooves and he did a couple of EPs for me and I signed them. And then, um, and I was really happy working at Slip and Slide. It was all going really well. Been there for about a year and a half. And um, the profile of the, there was, yeah, the profile of the label, I think was growing just with a lot of the records I was signing and I was promoting them really well. Then I get a call from Simon Dumble, who obviously ran AMPM and I met him before that because he was a cool tempo used to work under a guy called Steve Wolf and I met him when I used to work at Red Records and he brought some promos in for me so he's calling me and I thought this is weird he said yeah look I like what you're doing blah 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 and I'm looking for someone to come and work at the label so he'd he was at AMPM something had gone wrong there he defected like literally defected and that was kind of how the name defected records came up right and I knew about the label because it had been running for six months and they'd obviously signed some great records. Um, and I believe they'd signed Powerhouse, What You Need. Yes. And, 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 and that, in that time, um, this was around 98, 99, and I remember you and I were talking a lot and, um, and I'd signed a record from you. Um, Is it Evolution, I think it was? I don't no, know. it was a vocal track. Come and go with me. The Carol Silver, I think it was. No. Basically, the music, let's just say the music borrowed from a Dinah Ross record. Oh, who, I know which one. Um, who gets the prize. Uh, how long can I wait around? Yeah, that's yeah, it. That's, no, that, that's it. Yeah, listen, I remember now because you and this, I forgot this. You and I were on the phone talking and you were like, Seamus, what's going on in the UK? And I said to you, that's a terrible impersonation. I said to you. That's me, though. That's exactly I said what I said to you. I, I, this is, I'm going to claim this. I said to you, right, sample a disco record. Yeah, oh my God, I forgot about that. Yes. I'm flipping this. I said, I said, sample a disco record and put a vocal on top, right? So I remember you sent me a cassette and it was that track and I signed it, right? And then not long after that, no. I got a promo from Strictly Rhythm and it was Powerhouse What You Need. And I was like, damn, that's better. That's. <laughs> that's better than what I signed and you knocked it out of the park with that one and I was like wow that's amazing and then obviously Defected picked it up and um, you were working over there too and I got now I'm leaning from slip and slide yeah yeah so anyway I was humming and ahhing like I was thinking but for me it was a no-brainer it was like to go and work for Simon who I had loads of respect for and it was like for me it it was a big step up and I was like, okay, I'm sorry to leave here. So I left Slip and Slide. I'd left Dave Taylor behind, went to um, Defected. Um, and the, the reason I mentioned Dave Taylor is it's just sometimes you do discover people really early in their careers, but you don't know how big they're going to become. If I looked back in hindsight, I probably would have tried to manage him or, or do more, but I didn't realise he was that talented. And, you know, when he set up the Switch thing with Trevor Lovies and they set up a label called Dubsided, um, that's just 
flew and he started doing all that fidget house stuff and like i say got to produce loads of big people um but yeah i left him behind went to defected um and then yeah literally i think when i went in i was start i had to start promoting your record and um i remember we did the video yeah and um because first what, what you leave from one to the other you tell me on the phone go yeah. do this next thing you know and i remember you saying i'm over yeah. here now and i'm promoting yeah, yeah. here <laughs> i know and you you were you were killing it at the time because you yeah you were killing it back then and um the powerhouse powerhouse was, was really big though it was a great time it was yeah great time. when i think about those records because we were just signing great vocal led house records whether it's yours or soul searcher can't get enough you know and these records were just flying into the pop charts and um yeah you mentioned eddie i know eddie's on i don't know if eddie's still on but that was um eddie had done the house music which you turned down like yoshi you said to yeah yoshi toshi picked it up um and Deep when that came out becoming a household name todd terry's releasing like crazy masters at work are coming out with a record every week that's hot it was yeah. a fantastic time for that music. Yeah. oh yeah because we signed to be in love when Backfired, i was there fired all those records you yeah. in love yep yeah and um and then yeah the first record i signed was um was rise i mean it was on yoshi toshi but you know back then it's different to now isn't it because if you've got a record and you're you've got a label you own it for the for the world people can download it and stream it but back then it didn't work like that because people weren't streaming music or downloading music you had to buy the record so if a record was out in the uk the america it still made sense to license it for the uk right remix it and repackage it to the uk market and um yeah i'd signed that eddie amador rise and got some remixes i think it was like future shock and king unique or someone like that at the time mm -hmm. and you know it was um yeah it was a great time for music so that was how i got into it and that's how i got to work with simon but it all happened you understand like I, I didn't approach simon for the job he approached me i didn't approach slip and slide for the job they approached me so i hadn't planned any of that i think i was just doing things without realizing i was ticking the right boxes you know and making history at the same time well you know you hope so right just doing what you enjoy isn't it that's what it is and and actually getting a check uh, a wage which is quite yes yeah, amazing my, yeah my girlfriend said the other day she said that's the best thing to work out right work out what you like to do and then get paid to do it that's like the dream job isn't it well then it's not a job no longer it's a career yeah because the job is where i hate going to i gotta do this job it sucks yeah this is more like wow I get to travel around the world. I get to play all the places. I get to be treated well. Not to say that it's glamorous all the time, but hey, you get a taste of what it's like to be on that side, right? You've been able to travel. You've been able to play all over the, all over Europe. You've been able to play all over the world. You've you know you've acquired wisdom because of this job. Yeah, which you probably never would have acquired being just stuck in like your own little town. Yeah, you know? this takes you to places. Look, I always say this. I never could have assimilated with people from different cultures because I wouldn't have never had the chance to be around them. So you take things back with you to learn from, to, yeah. to share, and changes your whole viewpoint. Your, your, your vision opens up further than just being tunnel vision. Because a lot of people we know, and you know this too, they only see, yeah. okay, I go to work, got the kids at school, 
I got to take football lessons. I got to do this. I got to do that. And it's a, it's a rat race. And all yeah, you're yeah. doing is talking about when I retire. You never thought about the fun amongst all that time that we worked. Yeah. You know, the memories we have alone, we can write. Oh, it's crazy. The memories yeah, I mean, are nuts. Yeah, me and you go back, that's a, that's a lot of years, you know. Um, almost 30 was, years I know you. Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. But speaking on a good note, now I remember, of course, when I met Simon, he was at Cool Tempo. This is way before the Defectors. So I do yeah. remember meeting him and when I was starting to get my records on Azuli at that time. Dave Piccioni was signing stuff. So I, I, let's put it like this I was on Simon Dunmore's radar at that time already. Yeah. So, of course, I was coming over to play. And what we would do is I would try to see everybody because the idea of being in the UK to come and DJ, I'd want to try to sign records to all of you. You know, and that's an important thing, you know, signing records, making relationships, getting remixes, because it was a big business back then. So that's where my next question goes. I remember BBT God's Child. I remember those white labels coming out from you and stuff. And oh, God, yeah, yeah. God's Child. God's <laughs> Child. Does everybody that, remember that? Put yeah. your hands up. God's Child. That's Seamus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, that was funny. That was funny. Like this, like this to me. Here, Lenny. <laughs> He just put BBT uh, on his system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just start rocking this for me. Yeah. Plus the power of the DJ is still very important, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was funny because um, when I did this, I did a remake of um, Go Bang. Under my, it was the first time I did something under the name Seamus Haji, and it was signed to Cult Records, and Cult had a connection. Uh, they managed to, I guess they were speaking to Sleeping Bag or whoever it was, and... Um, that would, be Will Sok- that would have been Will Sokolov because that's yeah. Yeah, so they managed to clear the sample, right? Yep. Um, and he owns, um, he owns all the Arthur Russell stuff. I know he owns that for sure. Right. So they cleared it, and then a friend of mine, this guy called Nick Harris, he used to work at Defender Music. I think he might have been at Freetown as well. He just said to me, "Oh, you should make some. Why don't you use Big Bang Theory? Because I called it Big Bang Theory instead of Go Bang, kind of revert, you know, referring to when it all started, the Big Bang Theory." So he said, why don't you use the Big Bang Theory as a moniker? So I, start, I did a couple of tracks under Big Bang Theory. I did a version of um, Tanya Gardner's When You Touch Me that went out on Z Records. Um, did a couple more on, on, on Cole Records. And, um, and then I did some EPs when I was, on, uh, when I was working with Slip and Slide. I did some EPs there. And then when I was at Defected, um, I did a few demos. And Simon was like, oh, I really like that one. And I'd use, obviously, the... Um, the sample by just as long as I've got you. Um, forgot Love Committee. Love Committee. Just because it was like really powerful, really emotive. And then I had this album called Save the Children. This double vinyl album I bought in the 80s just because uh, it had Isaac Hayes and all this stuff on there. It was an amazing album. Um, but it had Jesse, Jesse, Jesse Jackson talking. And um, that's when he was doing the whole I Am Somebody speech. And um, I think Public Enemy had sampled a bit of it as well. And I did this demo, and it was so it was using that vocal, I am somebody. And credit where credit's due, it was Simon Dunmore who said, I think you should change it. So don't have him saying, I am somebody. Have him saying, there was a bit where he said, God's child. He said, have him saying, I am God's child, and just keep repeating that. So it doesn't say, I am somebody, it just says, I am God's child. So I, I did that. And then um, 
I don't know why. We just thought, why don't we do it as a white label and see what happens? Don't let anyone know it's me and just put BBT. So we did that and it went out. And then funny yeah. enough, um, Craig the Mech, who had been doing A&R at Positiva, but he was working with Nick Hawks at Incentive. There was a label that was um, set up with Ministry of Sound, just like Defective was initially. And they actually, they didn't know it was me, but they actually put a, a pitch in for it. They wanted to sign the record. Not knowing that you was, were involved, that you yeah. were behind it, and they didn't know it was defective because I think we, we yeah, promoted. because everybody had white labels and it just said BB and T or something like that. Yeah, BBT, yeah. So it was BBT for Big Bang Theory, handwritten with a pen. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. And we'd given it to um, Power Promotions in the UK to promote it, so nobody knew it was a defective record. Nobody knew and then, anything behind it. Nobody knew anything. No. You handing it to me saying, "Keep this on the ch keep this close to your chest." Yeah. I'm like, yeah, why? Yeah, yeah. You'll find out later. Yeah, yeah. Like, so, we, so we didn't sign it to them. And then, um, and then Judge Jaws, I think he played on Radio 1 for about six weeks in a row. And then we put it out. And it actually went into pop charts. It went in like the top, I think the top 50 of the pop charts. It was just an underground dance record, you know. Um, Crazy. Crazy. But yeah, it was like that. Then you could make those kinds of records, you know. And they, they would do that. Yeah, different time. So from that point, I remember, of course, you know, Janet's there, yeah. you working, and I know you guys consummated marriage, and God bless you both. You had children. Yeah. And you, when did you end your tenure at, at Defected? Officially? So I was there for about, after being there for about two and a half years, I think it was like just come up to the end of 2002, and we we. We were just, I think we were just getting ready to put God's Child out. And um, what it is, I was working full-time A&R and I just, I found it really difficult to get in the studio. And sometimes I was getting offered gigs abroad and I wasn't allowed to go and do the gigs if they were during the week. Because you could go and play, you could play in Portugal during the week. Was, the parties over there were going off. And um, I just felt like I wanted to do my own thing. So um, that's when I left. And... Um, I didn't know what I was going to do, actually. I just started making some records, and then it just made sense to set up my own label. So what I did was um, the, the Sons of Soul record, Race of Survival, which I'd released back in 94, I just found it for some reason. And then I just had this Carl Bean, you know, record, and I tried it over the instrumental, and it just sort of fitted like a glove. So, and I, I got in touch with, at the time, I spoke to Mel Sharon because um kevin hedge was doing a and r for him at west end records but pre to that you called me and asked if i had the instrumental version and, and i had phone calls yes really i just remember because you said to me do you oh. have the instrumental version and i sent it over to you from the flip side of the motown record from tom Moulton. Oh. and you said to me but that's not the part pal joey uses i gotta yeah. get the part i remember the conversation that i've got about that yeah, because yeah. you would say, I'm, I, I got this record I'm working on, but I want yeah, yeah. a part that sounds like dance from Pal Joe. I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, I've got and the I said to you, And I said yeah. to you, you've got to go to Mel Sharon. He's got the master, the two inch. Yeah. And you yeah. made the four. Go ahead. Wow. Good memory. So I, I just remembered to... it. Just remembered it. Yeah. I can't remember. But um, yeah, I spoke to Mel Sharon. And then um, he was like, cool. As I like that we could work something out, you know, with this record. And um, so we worked it out <clears throat> and he let me put it out. And then um, again, I just did that as a white label and I did it under this name, Mecca. So 
I'd, re I'd received, I released one record under the name Mecca um, on Defected called I Got You, featuring Brian Chambers, which actually was a complete ripoff of your record, Got What You Need, the powerhouse record. <laughs> it's completely like that, right? It's a different sample. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's influenced by that record, if you listen to it, right? Very much so. So I did that record and... Um, I had no idea, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. And I'll be honest with you. Here's it. I know the record, Mecca, but here's the thing. We're getting the records back. I'm not paying attention saying that Seamus take my record or, or listen. I was very influenced by that record, man, you know. Um, but anyway, so what I did was I used That's the name love. Mecca. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Major love. Thank you. I used, I used the name Mecca again. <laughs> Again, because I just want, I didn't want people to know it's me. Well, here's a, that's the question. Why were you hiding Seamus from the world? I, I, you know what? I think because um, I didn't want people to snub the record. It's like, oh, it's, it's Seamus. I'm sure there would have been a little bit of that. Like when I did God's Child, I just think it created more excitement that people didn't know it was me, you know? And I'm talking more from a UK perspective. And then when I did the Mecca record, I got you. Again, because like I'm working for the label, so I just wanted to keep it separate. It's like we can put it out for the label, but nobody's going to know it's me unless they read the small print. And um, and then yeah, with Race of Survival, I thought right, I'll do it under the name Mecca. Did a white label, and it was based, so it was Race of Survival, but with the the Carl Bean sample, which worked really well, and that created a buzz in the shops. And we, so I had no intention of setting up a record label. We just pressed up 500 white labels. We did enough. Once we sold 2,000 white labels, we decided to set up a label. And we set up two labels. One was called Big Love for more mainstream house, like main room house music. And one was called Soul Love for the more soulful stuff. And then we probably sold about 6,000 copies of that record back in the day. And it was like, oh, uh, you know, a new let label. Me clarify, let me clarify it for everybody who's in this new world of saying, <laughs> you know, downloads, digital downloads, and everyone's so excited over they get 300 downloads on track source and they're in the chart. Could you imagine having to sell 6,000 physical copies? 6,000 physical copies. You know what the pressing bill was? A lot. Yeah. And look how much money, but how much work went into it. So you had to plan six to eight months between promotion and working a record hard to get this physical thing to go all the way. So things took a, a lot longer back then and you had to be completely locked into it. Because once you start laying out money, that's the way it goes. You actually have these physical copies. And there has been mistakes made where you pressed it wrong. Mastering had to be redone. Imagine that. Scrap everything and do it again. <laughs> it's happened to all of us. Yeah. But it's part of the commitment. Whereas today in the digital age, oh, no problem. We'll take it down and put it back up. It doesn't cost much except some time. Yeah. So people were reluctant and they really had to believe in what you did back then to put records out. You know, you really oh, I mean, it was, it's a big risk. I, I remember at the time, um, I probably had about £2,000 in my bank account and, um, you know, no job. And I was like, what do I do? But I was DJing every weekend. That was the good thing. And um, we did two records. There was another one I did... Um, on Big Love called Your Underwear, and it was under another moniker called Get This. So what I was doing was probably a bit influenced by Joe Negro, where he was making all the records himself, his dead records label, but under different monikers. Yes. Right? So it was Grant Nelson. Grant Nelson's doing the Grant same. Grant Nelson as well, yeah. Because, and you could do it then. because It seems bizarre because it seems like the polar opposite of what you should do for the profile of your name. 
But when you've got a label and you're not you're, you're not an established label where people are going to send you records to sign, not good records anyway, um, and you're making all the records, you just end up, yeah, doing them under different monikers to keep the interest. So not every single record is Seamus Haji, Seamus Haji. So I was making records as Mecca and Get This and 11th Dimension, loads of different monikers, Big Bang Theory as well. And, uh, yeah, it just kind of grew from there. It just kind of like, okay, now we've got a label and we're running this thing. And, and also, we were just lucky that the records I made were really popular. So they were getting exclusively licensed in other territories. So someone in Italy with a licensed race of survival, so they had exclusive single rights there and maybe in another country or Germany. And then we were getting loads of compilation requests. And it was mad because you just get on Head Candy and Ministry of Sound compilations and there was good money to be made. Obviously, that's when there was a good compilation market, you know. So it was different times. Like, yeah, setting up a record label today is a whole different kettle of fish. But back then, you know, you could pretty much be a very small cottage industry, one man band set up and you could do really well out of having a record label. But it was never just the label. I was obviously... DJing as well. Right. You've always had that DJ thing going on. Pesky bothers some type of job that you had to do. Yeah. Where people gave you drinks and you enjoyed yourself and made people happy. But it's with Pesky during the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> but as we keep this going, so Big Luff is created off the back of the strength that you had defected. When you left defected, I noticed Big Luff became your mainstay. Yeah. How, so how did that yeah yeah that's another thing as well i mean like, you know this is the thing lenny you know when you get to this age <clears throat> you look back on things you think we all make mistakes i probably i made some mistakes i've done things yeah i, I can remember i can remember when i did um i did god's child with defected then i left then i was doing big love i did a follow-up um record as big bang theory which was called do you got funk and i remember simon wanted it he wanted to sign it for defected you know he had an idea of what we could do with it and then i was just like you know what i'm gonna keep it for myself and i probably ended up keeping too much stuff for myself because when you just do stuff on your label it, it you don't tap into other labels and the profile you get from other labels or maybe get into play at their events and all that stuff you know so if for anyone out there today i'd always say look yeah great have your own label but don't just be in one lane let's work with other labels to help your profile build and other labels can do things you can't do, you know, because Defect is a massive label. But I, um, I just think at that time, like a lot of people, I was really focused on my label and making records for my label. I own them for life of copyright. Do you know what I mean? I just liked having ownership of... And also, you know, if I had an idea to make a record, I didn't have to run it by anybody. It was just like, I like this, I believe in it, and, and I want to release it. So it was, it, it was creative freedom, you know? um that's what i enjoyed about it and and as and i guess there is mistakes on we'll ask you that in a moment but what's the yeah. first now that you leave defected what's the what's the premise now for you and janet because janet's working alongside you as well now she's now doing your promotion and working the record day to day yeah what, what's that like are you signing stuff from people at that time or are you just only you putting stuff out well initially it was only me because we, we we didn't have a rep you know it wasn't like um most people would want to sign their records to Defected or Azuli or, you know, there's a number of labels out there. So, you know, just like I, I've had friends like ATFC, you know, he had his One Fat Diva label 
um, people like that that I knew had their own labels and they were producing their own records and probably enjoyed having that ownership. Um, but I think within a couple of years, um, and also I didn't really want to rinse it out with doing remixes. I was very much about making a record and releasing the record without being reliant on remixes. Just like make the record, if it performs well, maybe you could remix it in the future. But it was all about the record itself being good. And, um, but at some point, um, I guess I started doing collaborations with some people. So me and Ida and ATFC, we did some collaborations. And, um, and then it was like people wanted me to start doing remix swaps with them. So that started happening. People like Beanie Martini, Mark Knight, obviously ATFC. Um, we started doing remix swaps. So I'd do something for their label. Do some, they'd do something for my label. Then we started doing collaborations. Um, then people started sending records to me to sign. So when that happened, it was like, oh, right, okay, now people want to sign records to the label, you know. Um, so that was happening as well. And it was, yeah, it was going really well. Um, it just, yeah, just grew in popularity. Well, so who's the, the partner, I'll let you name him, that you started doing the remixes with? Oh, Paul Emanuel. Thank you. Yeah. When did that start? And how so did that begin? So that's really weird, right? So I, I met him back in the days. If we go back to the 90s, like 94, when I did um, Sons of Soul, um, around that time, even before doing the Race of Survival record, I'd started doing some remixes um with somebody called paul waller who used to work with um used to program for frankie fonsett and um he programmed beats and for uh, massive attack and soul to soul and we just met through the record shop and um he started doing some remixes and he says to me oh i've got this remix to do and next thing i know we're remixing lisa stansfield who was a big big name at, at the time um and we did some pre-production and again it was sort of gave me the insight of how to make records again I, I had my mpcc mpc60 at the time and but we had this like really hot keyboard player um we went into a big ssl studio we had a really great engineer just having that team where it makes your dreams you know come to life and i was like playing records or samples and things i liked so we did this lisa Stansfield remix and um we were doing a few remixes and we were working in this, uh, loads of SLCL studios. There was one called Battery Studios in Wilsdon that was connected to Jive Zomba. And one of the in-house engineers was Paul Emanuel. And we had this remix to do and we got in and he was the engineer that we were given. Um, so that was around 94, I think. Fast forward, I think to around 99, 2000, when I was at Defected and, um, I was looking for an engineer to work with and Simon said to me, oh, I know this guy called Paul Emmanuel and he used to be part of Club Asylum with Jeremy Sylvester. So they'd done a lot of stuff on that kind of UK garage scene and I was like, oh, I know that name. And um, actually when I did the Mecca record, I Got You with Brian Chambers, um, he engineered it. So I went in and we worked on that track together. And then when I left Defected and I set up Big Love, it was basically, he was my guy, he was my engineer. I'd go with my ideas and we'd make them happen. And then at some point I said to him, I heard something that he did. He did a remix on a Zuli that never came out, but there was a Chush and Sabellas record and he did this remix and it was like quite electronic. And I was getting a bit influenced by um, some electronic stuff like Chicken Lips, He Not In, that record had come out and it, I was really influenced by that record. 
And I'd heard what he'd done. I said, why don't we do something together? And I had this idea to remix, um, well, I had the acapella to Class Action Weekend. And I had an idea to sample it and do something with it. And we just did it together. And so we did it as Haji and Emmanuel. And he, at that point, wasn't DJing. He had no interest in DJing. So nobody really knew who he was because he wasn't out there DJing as Paul Emmanuel. Um, and I was obviously the DJ in the duo. But um, so either we would do sessions where it was my project and he would engineer for me, or we would do stuff uh, collaboratively together. And I think when we worked together, we both grew and developed, I think. We kind of learned stuff from each other. I, I got a lot of respect for him. He's very talented and a great engineer. We yeah. all used to remark, damn, Seamus records sound dope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice he's and bright and clean. Yeah. He smashed he's, the shit out of SSL, boy. Well, he's, yeah, he's a massive part of that. And I remember at the time I used to, there was a place I used to, back clean. then. Dude, Seamus, you used to be able to eat off your drums, how clean everything sounded. <laughs> I used to joke about it. I said, this guy, what's he doing? Digital shit? This shit don't even sound like analog anymore. It sounds He's so very cool. talented. I remember going in with my MPC 60 and it was just like, because I was always used to do my own beats and it was like, once he did it, I was like, oh, okay. I'll just leave him to do it. He knows yeah, put it, here, yeah, put it down. Yeah. Back. Yeah. yeah. He, he, was, he was shit hot. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, um, it was, I'm very ideas driven. It was just like, we both, our influences work together. So what we were doing, when we were doing all the things like Darjay, Brighter Days and Degrees of Motion, do you want it right now? And we were just pick, take, you know what it was for me at the time? We did go a bit more electronic, but it tapped into what I said to you earlier, where my first thing that I'd got into when it was dancing, it was electro-funk and hip-hop. So that early electro-funk stuff that I'd been influenced by, when there were a few records coming out, like Chicken Lips, and there was some slightly electro-funk records coming out, electro house records i kind of it was a throwback to that for me so we were kind of taking that inspiration of that slight electronic vibe and then but then we'd be mixing with pianos and you know strings still um, making a hybrid still keeping that soul edge to it i remember that. yeah we call it hybrid sounding electro hybrid house music yeah so we cut we kind of yeah we created we came up with our own sound basically so yeah, and we had a good run. Manuel did a lot of hats off to you on that. A lot of good remixes. I remember Thanks. playing a lot of stuff. So as this, as the barometer of time goes on and music changes, mm. I remember around 06, 07, as the music that we love started to go real underground and a young man named David Guetta comes out with that new EDM sound with the piano. Bah, bah. Where does that take your sound and big love? Where do you do from that point change? Well, I think, you know, you know to be honest, if you listen to a lot of labels <clears throat> from that time, whether it's Tourum or Defected or just loads of labels, um, they all went down the electronic path. Like everybody did, you know. If you listen to a David Penn record from 2007, 2008, it's electronic, right? Um, it wasn't EDM. It wasn't what David Guess is doing. But with, like I'm saying, I got influenced by the electronic vibe. It all went slightly more electronic. That's just what happened. And um, the EDM thing just took it to the extreme because it ended up sounding like sort of slowed down trance music. It just became something else like pop vocals. Um, it was a difficult time. I think from around 2007 up until, I don't know, many years later, House music was in a, in a difficult place. Oof. It, it was, was non-existent almost. <laughs> yeah. 
labels closed. Uh, the, the digital downloading started to become more prevalent. It, it just everything that we were used to changed like dramatically. Yeah. You know, where you can make a living on selling a few thousand copies every month for having your own record label was no longer existent. That just wasn't existent. Pressing plants were closing. You remember? It's yeah. a difficult time for all of us. Oh, yeah, we got burnt. I remember probably... 3MV closed. Uh, let's yeah. go down. Amato closed. Everybody was old money. We were yeah. like, ah! Oh. We yeah, were like, I going on invoices going, yeah. holy shit. Somebody owes you 20,000, 10,000. Yeah. What? That was the death of a lot of labels. We were, um, we lost probably about, I think we lost about 8,000 pounds at one point. Listen to that, people. He lost money like everybody. You hear that? Yeah. It's real. That's it's all being real. Yeah. House stories. <clears throat> and that was just because when we were, we, what we used to do was we used to manufacture records, but we weren't with one distribution company. We would just, we would manufacture the record and then we would give it to different distributors, but just one of them went down and owed us like £8,000, which we just had to ride. But back then, <clears throat> I remember in those times, like 2004, 2005, and we'd go to Miami because that was the place that, you know, the Winter Music Conference in Miami was, was going off. And I can remember we probably just got a £20,000 check from Ministry of Sound. And that was just for the last six months of compilation usage, you know? So there was money to be had. Happy days are here. Happy days. They were really happy days. And then it just sort of, <clears throat> the music scene changed. You know, there's illegal downloads. People are file sharing. The club scene had changed. It, I'll tell you what, I'd be honest with you. There was a point when house, the word house was a dirty word. Exactly. That word was not word. being used. It was curse word. Like saying <laughs> when disco died. You like disco? Get out of here, kid. Yeah. <clears throat> it was a dirty word. People were not, I mean, you hear the word house music now being used a lot on a lot of platforms. There was a time it was not being used. Oh, it was an evil, it was a curse word. It was like, yeah. your house music will get out of here. Yeah. So, you know, I'm just being honest, you know, when you run, when you've got, I mean, you know, I love what I do, but the, when, it, <clears throat> when it's your livelihood, this is your business, you do have to adapt to the marketplace. Doesn't mean, I was going to start putting out trance records or whatever, but you do slightly adapt. So I was always like doing stuff on Big Love that was moving a bit more electronic, but then I also had Soul Love, so I could still make records that were a bit more soulful and do those on Soul Love. I still had that outlet. And when it came to doing remixes, yeah, I mean, I did a lot of remixes, you know, for big artists, whether it was Rihanna or Moby or Calvin Harris, you know, um, and that's hard to turn down. It's, it's you know, it's nice yeah. to have those those calls and people are paying you good money. Um, and then at some checks point coming in, checks coming in. Yeah, checks coming in. You know, you got kids, you got kids at school and the mortgage. And and at some point you start thinking, right, am I is this what I intended to do? Am I really enjoying this? Your life's changed, you know, you've got responsibilities. And when I started out, I was making music for fun, and then it's like, oh, this is my living. And you, you, you're getting older and it starts to get more serious, you know? Yep. So wait, were you asking questions to yourself? Did I make a mistake? Yeah, there's definitely times I think, oh, I did, you know, cause I might've done, you know, I did some, you know, I had some records that went in the pop charts, you know, where it was the, the booty love boogie tonight record, you know, number two in the UK pop charts. I never thought I would do that. It was in, in the top 10 for six weeks. 
you know, I did the last night DJ Save My Life. That was obviously very electronic, um, was in the top 15. And that, and that, you know, a lot of people know me for that record who never knew me before because they don't know my backstory because you've gone on a, what happens is you've gone on a more commercial level and they only know you for that record. Right. So when you would have done probably Powerhouse, it's like, oh, again, you know, you cool. did that, the Ramonica. Yeah, yeah. They didn't know anything about me before that. No. The industry did, but not the general public. No. But you did the same thing. You you could have done that as Lenny Fontana, but you did it as Powerhouse. Well, because the technicality was, if I wanted to do Lenny Fontana, Strictly Rhythm be owning my name, and I couldn't use it today. BMG would own my name. Oh, right, okay. Because in those those days, you had to sign the name over. To Exclusive. The yeah, that's a good point. And I was yeah. not going to do that. So I would do an inducement letter, which stated that you can own the Powerhouse name, and I could still go and do other things. Otherwise, I'd yeah. be dead right now. Yeah, because you did the other record, didn't you? The um, Chocolate Sensation. Chocolate Sensation. Was that, what, what name was that under? That was under Lenny Fontana, but I did that directly with FFRR. Yeah. So I was able to do that for an X amount of time deal, oh, okay. and it still yeah. allowed me to go ahead and do it. Yeah. I would do it that way, but with the American labels, they wanted to sign everything, including your name, and I couldn't yeah. let that happen. I was never allowing you take my name that's my yeah, real yeah. name now what do i do with my real name yeah 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 can't use it no more forget that yeah so i Not guess to even say now even looking forward yeah. i wish my name was like that instead of powerhouse because that would be the moniker but yeah in hindsight thank god i didn't sign away because i'd be going now i can't do any, anything under my name yeah today and so i yeah and i'd probably i don't know maybe i'm I, I don't know. Sometimes I think I might, I could have done the more commercial stuff under a different moniker because people would still know it's me. Um, I don't know. Cause once you do something under your name, that's what people know you for. So a lot of people will know me from, you know, Boogie Tonight, Booty Love and Last Night DJ. They don't know any of the other stuff. And then people who know me from before that will think, Oh, hold on. He's really changed his sound. And, um, it's just kind of what was going on at the time. And I, I was being influenced by stuff. And there was stuff that was exciting me that was, um, that was influencing me, I suppose. Um, and then I think at some point years ago, I think about six years ago, um, it just got to a point where I was like, right, I, I'm, I just stopped doing all the remixes. Cause I was still even like up to about what? Yeah. Five years ago, I was still getting remixes from major labels, whether it's Labyrinth or Ed Sheeran and all these big artists. And, um, really good money but it just got to a point where i thought it isn't what i want to do anymore and i kind of went back to basics with big love and soul love and went back to making the records that i started making out originally which were all very much based on funk and soul and disco so going back to the roots i just wanted to make stuff that i was happy making again you know and that makes sense because you're still an artist after all said and done you're still artistic yeah so, now, you know, on I'm the road, honest. on Seamus's road in the car, because I'm sitting next <laughs> to him, so we're driving along, and here we come into 26, 2006, 2010, 2012. Things are starting to come back a little bit. Yeah. Starting to make a change again. I started noticing around 2012, dance music started to make a change where disco was starting to show its colors. Yeah. 2011, 2012. Free to even Glitterbox really being famous yet. But yeah. I'm starting to see people, a lot of remixes. Dimitri's releasing stuff. 
Where are you in all that? What are you thinking? What's going on? Um, I think I was, yeah, I was looking at the time. I was just reviewing the situation because I remember 2010 when things were kind of weird. Um, again, I just got approached. This happens to me. It just seems to happen. I got approached by Strictly Rhythm to do A&R for them on a full-time basis. So I was running Big Love. Who approached you? Is it Mark Finkelstein? Mark Finkelstein. Yeah, because they were going through defective, but then there was a point where they wanted to become completely autonomous. So they split from defected, and I won't go into it now. It's a long story, but when I'd originally originally left defected back in two thousand and two, there was a point where Mark and I were talking about Strictly Rhythm, and he was in a weird place with Strictly Rhythm because he'd done a deal with. Um, I think it was, was it Warner at the time? That's exactly who it was. UK? Yeah. He'd done a deal with Warner in the UK. Warner America, actually. Yeah. And he was in a weird place with that deal. <clears throat> and we were talking about me going to work with him, but there was all these legal wranglings that he was going through. You remember that was all going on at the time, right? Yeah, I remember because I was, right. I was in, a few of my big records got wrapped up in that. All right. of them were clear. Yes. Yeah. So it was that time, it was that time of, Live Element Be Free, that was a record that they believed in. And I remember Warner wouldn't run with it. And it was a weird how, about my, how about my Pow 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 record with Daryl Devano? Oh, that, yeah. That, that EMI called that wanted to license it. Now I couldn't license it to them because he did the Warner deal. Oh, God, I'm sick. Oh, of right. Yeah. Yep. So I'm in the middle of that too. That was all going on. So we, yeah. we, we had this little talk back then. And then when I left, um, well, no, then I was running Big Love. And then when they left Defected, I guess he just fought with me again. So he picks up the phone and said, listen, I want you to come and be a full-time A&R. You're going to have to put Big Love on a, on a hiatus for a while. So I, Big Love was ticking over, but I wasn't signing music to it. And then um, I was working there with Phil Cheeseman um, for about a year. And we were signing good music and putting it out. But you were, because of all that stuff that was going on, like the EDM stuff and, and dubstep, um, I was getting this pressure on me to sign these kinds of records and I didn't want to sign that kind of music. So we just agreed that we part ways based on musical differences. And I didn't think they should go down that path. So I left, they did go down that path for a bit. Um, and then I went back to the, to doing my thing with big love. <clears throat> and I'll be honest with you, it was a bit difficult back then. It was like 2011. Like 2011, 2012, up until about 2014, I was doing stuff. But like I said to you before, I was busy DJing. I was still doing lots of big remixes for major labels over here and, and in America. Um, but it was definitely a bit more, it was the more commercial stuff, you know, remixing Usher and Neo. But it was paying the bills. Um, but it was a weird time. And then, I, like I say, by about 2014, that's when I said to myself, I just, I don't want to be doing that stuff anymore. And I want to just get back to doing what it is that I want to do. So I'll be honest, that was, and did I, I might've made mistakes. There might've been things I shouldn't have done. You know, it's difficult when people are offering you remixes for lots of money. And the thing about it is, well, you get a bit pigeonholed. So when you've made a record like Booty Love by Booker Tonight, and it's gone number two in the pop charts, everybody wants you to do that again. They want I that. I want that sound. That yeah, that way. sound. Or, just put my song, put my artist on that sound. It's like, huh? 
Yeah. And I never really did that, to be honest, but they want that full vocal remix. And once you do a full vocal remix, it takes you away from it's less clubby. It's more about radio and doing the radio edits and you end up in a more commercial world. So your remixes are getting played in the more on the more commercial shows and stuff like that. So, you know, um, yeah, I did a lot of that. And I think a lot of people have done that in the past. You just get to a point where your name is really popular and you get inundated with remixes. And then you think, hold on, I've got to start making my own records again and um, making records that I really enjoy. And through that process, I was also getting older. And when you get older, you're more likely to go back to your original roots, the music that you got into in the first place. You sure you weren't getting grumpier? <laughs> That's not my kids, that. But I heard you know, otherwise. I've heard otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, um, yeah, it was just about getting back to doing what I really loved and enjoyed. So, so here, on, on, the, on, the, on the time scale, you know, we're getting yeah. through we're almost getting close to back to 2016, 2018. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you what happened, right? I'll be honest with you. I was, um, yeah, just on my own running the label. And um, it just got to a point where I wanted to start something new. So I started this other little imprint called Reloved, which is very much tapped into that sort of re-edit world because I was getting quite influenced by that stuff. And it's just a, a passion, you know. Um, and then I just thought, right, for me to get my mojo back, I started, you know, commissioning remixes on basically records I'd made years ago. So things like Hard and Emmanuel Weekend, I gave to David Penn to remix. Um, I think I gave Darje Brightadays to Angelo Ferreri to remix and just bringing it and people like Dr. Packer were coming into the mix. Um, just getting people to remix my records. And then I started working out what I wanted to do. And it was definitely going down more of the, the disco influenced side of things and i thought that's kind of where i want to be i want to be more in in that lane so i started making new records whether they were sample tracks or full vocal so, tracks so so what's the first record that because i noticed there's a record that that's like a light bulb turns on there had to be one record and you said right i can do this what's that record you must have heard something that said i'm going in the studio now um I don't, I'm not sure actually. It might have been, <clears throat> I remember I did race, when I, with Race to Survival, <clears throat> that was one where there's a record I was very close to and I wanted to have it refreshed, but I didn't want to do it myself. So I gave it to Richard Earnshaw. Good choice. And, yeah. Muso, Muso Richard Earnshaw. Where are you, Richard? Come oh, on, Muso. And I didn't have all the, <laughs> Muso, I didn't have the parts. I didn't have the parts, but I, I gave him the vocal and I think he did it like as a re-edit and stuff. And he, he basically slowed it down just and just stripped it back. And it was the, that was probably one of the records I heard where somebody was like reworking on my records. I thought, okay, that's kind of the approach I need to take is slow it down, clean it up, strip it back. Because when we were making those records in the late 90s and they were all 128 BPM, they're all yeah. skipping yeah. drums, just like fast, like loads going on. Bang. And, Bang. Yeah. When you're used to doing that, that's what you're used to. So now it's like, all oh, right, it's really dropped. And then it also affects the genre of the music. So it's kind of, if once you get down to, you're taking it from that tempo to one, two, two, one twenty. it's like, and then it fits into the, a specific genre, which is uh, new disco. I mean, back in the day, a lot of these records now are, are in all these different genres on the, something's 
called tech house something's called house something's new disco whatever back in the day we didn't have that it was just it was all house music you know so when i was going yeah who the hell it was all under the same umbrella Otherwise, a record like Chicken Lips, He Not In, it would have been like, well, where's this? Where do, where, where do we place this? There wasn't, there wasn't a new disco genre. That was just a record that got played in the house clubs and but it got played across the board. So everything now is so genre specific. So you have to be, it's very much about the tempo, the drums. Um, and I think we've all got better at listening, to, making records and making them cleaner. So I kind of learned that from... That was one of the records that made me think, oh, that's how I need to approach my music. Slow it down and just strip it back. Let it breathe a bit more, you know? Right. So disco found you and the new disco found you, the slower sound. It's because I guess because we're getting older, we need to slow it all down. So we can keep, <laughs> yeah. up, with it. <laughs> so we can keep up with it. Yeah. I hear it. I hear you. So you're on your quest now to do this disco sound. Very cool. Again, here we go. You get called somehow back to Defected somewhere. I know that's coming. When the hell did that call come back? So that was, yeah, that was kind of mad. That was... Madness, um, I thought so too. When I yeah. said, wow, talk about full circle. Yeah. So this was, it was last year at um, IMS. And, um, you know, in amongst um, running my label, still DJing, um, producing music and stuff and like i say i'd stopped doing all remixing but i'd started doing some other things as well like i just kind of got into managing a few people so i was managing again it's only because now i've got more knowledge and i've been in the industry a while i started managing this duo called illis and barrentos from scotland and they'd done a remix for me and then it was just like ended up managing them and um so did, you like did you like doing yeah I, I, it was yeah it's it's, it's interesting the management thing with the with the management you've got to put your ego to one side that's what you've got to do because it's not about you anymore it's about these new guys who are coming through so you've got the experience and you can help them and tell them about stuff and you've been there um but it's very much about them so i did enjoy it and i really like the guy got on with them really well um but i was just over at ims and i was there for probably because of that reason i was i was managing them and we were talking about a deal with ultra records for them and they, they've done the deal now so i was doing things just based on my experience i got them a publishing deal got them a great american agent um we were talking about doing a deal for for records with ultra at the time and then um somebody just mentioned something to me um and they just said that um somebody was leaving at defected and the person that spoke to me, his label goes through them. And he just said, look, you know, I, I wouldn't mind you looking after my label because they've obviously got loads of label labels under the, the wing. Um, and that was Brian Tapper. So, you know, sulfuric goes through defected. And um, and obviously I've known Brian for years. And he, that's basically what happened. He just said, look, I, someone's leaving. And that person used to look after my label uh, amongst other labels. And then we just, um, yeah, it just led to that. We had a chat, I think he had a word. And then we just, next thing I came back from IMS, had a meeting in the defective office. And, and then I started the week after that. Um, and then I had to stop managing the guys just because it was, they were connected to another label. So it was like, look, I'd love to keep managing you, but I couldn't. Um, but I guess when it comes down to it, in all honesty, would I rather, at this point in my life, would I rather be managing people or would I rather be, doing A&R and it's A&R because that's what I do 
and I've done that for years. And um, and then part of the conversation also was about bringing um, Big Love into the defective fold, which was also really nice because I'm just not I'm not on my own now. I was doing everything myself. Um, so that was really good as well, just to bring that in. So and just be part of a, a team. So now we go and then we all find out that you're back at Defective. Of course, we're all happy to hear it because it's one of our own. Yeah. That we know understands our world because that's important. So they had some other people working there during that shift that we talk about, that in-between time, mm. that were looking at more like the Coca-Cola record, more the younger guys. Yeah. And we, as who we are, are looked at as the good old great dinosaurs roaming the earth. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, cool. it's all good, but we're still not to pasture. No, God, no. I he, have he... a lot of, I have, especially for me alone and with my other co-parts, we still got a lot of mileage left on these cars. We're yeah. still ready to rock. I'm still ready. I'm hot rodding now. I'm ready to go full power, which I have been. But. It's glad to know that one of our own, one of our own people that we grew up together, grew old together in this game. I should yeah. say, we were all grown men already, but we all grew old together doing this, but we understand our, we understand the old and we, and we also embrace the new. So now yeah. you're involved in a situation where are you just ANRing? What exactly is the job title now at the factor? What is so, your- so I'm ANR and my, my- my responsibilities are to, um, it's like A&R label managed for Glitterbox, Sulfuric, um, Four to the Floor, which is the label we use for all the, the catalogue records we sign, um, we release through there. Um, also New Groove, that's another label we've got that we're releasing on. Then I've brought Big Love in as well. Um, and then, but saying that, we're very... Um, it's all about the, the good of the company. So it's like if someone signs me or sends me a record or if I hear something that I think is good for defected records, I'm not going to ignore it. So I, I can bring stuff in for defected or DFTD or if I think it's for classic music, the label that Luke runs. So I kind of had that approach. I mean, there's a couple of records now. There's one that I've signed to defected records. There's something else that I might try and bring in for DFTD. So do you know what I mean? It's about... It's, the way music comes into Defective is like it will come into us and then we'll play it to each other and it's very much then that if we all like it it's about which label would it fit on so I could get a record and think oh this could be great for Big Love or it could be for Glitterbox or it might be better for Sulfuric um, you know we signed a record from um, Oscar G recently and that was it's a new record but it's kind of got an old school feel so that felt really right for Four to the Floor and we signed a record from Joe Vaughn which just sounded like it would work on New Groove, you know, and we've got, we've got all the, you know, I love New Groove and that whole label and we've got the whole catalogue. We've not released anything new on that label, but this record by Jovon, it's, it's two-track EP, just sounds perfect for New Groove, you know. Um, at the same time, we had another record we signed in Moscow G that was um, on, I think it was on DFTD or The Affected Records. So it's just about where it fits within the label group. You know? so in, in the final decision making, so people that understand this have never been able to get access to hearing you speak or someone from defected. Yeah. When the record comes to pecking order, when a record comes to you, do you are you the final go-to to making that deal happen? Or does it still have to be captained by the Simon Dunmore in the end? Oh, I mean, look, ultimately, How's um, that <clears throat> Simon's at the top of this 
food chain. Um, so, yeah, I mean, ultimately, if he's not into the record, it's not going to get signed. No matter how much you love it. No, I think ultimately it's down to him. Unless it's like we can really prove that we should sign this record. But the one thing about Simon is he does know what he's talking about. That's the thing. I think that's why he's so good at what he does. He's got a really good nose and he can also see where the music scene is or where it's going or what's happening um, and try not to have too much of a, a knee jerk reaction to what's going on in the marketplace, you know, and there's not many people like that. There's been times when I've had my doubts. I kind of thought, God, you know, what's where's house music going because of what's going on with EDM. But um, I think with him, it's very much about he's always believed in songs and great songs will stand the test of time. So. That's always the thing, isn't it? We always focus on vocal records. We'll put out some tech house tracks or some tracky bits, but it's very vocal um, driven. So, yeah, look, ultimately, he's got me into the record. I mean, sometimes there might be things that I want to sign. Obviously, for me, the labels that I'm supposed to go out and kill for is Big Love, it's Sulfuric, it's Glitterbox, um, and the other labels. Um, so I'll be really fighting the corner. But like I said, you know, ultimately, and I might have a bit more sway with some of those labels, but ultimately he, it's, it's his call. It's his company. On another note, as an artist now, Seamus Hodge, the artist, how important is social media to your day-to-day? -day? For people to understand what that's Super like. important, yeah. Just, well, look, for my what job... Involved, really what's involved in your day-to-day -day with that? What are you yeah, doing? it's... Um, you're just checking all the time because it's good from an A&R point of view because people are trying to message me to send me music in lots of different ways, whether it's Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram or, you know, um, is there any more? That's it, really. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. In, do, you make yeah. little, do you make little videos for TikTok? <laughs> I'm not on TikTok. Me neither. No. <laughs> um, but, you know, and it's also, you know, I follow people because I'm interested in what some of these new up-and-coming people are doing. Um, so it's a good way to keep informed. Um, but, yeah, it's really important. And then, obviously, so, from promoting music on my label or the, the in-house labels is super important. So let's yeah. ask, let, me, let me go, let me delve a little deeper now. So if you were the major label, like I know a lot of the major labels are looking at more statistics artistically from, the, from statistic as far as the... Um, the Facebook, uh, not the not your personal page, more your artist page, Instagram yeah. followers. Is that really more important to you to signing a record, or is it based the music more important for you? Which one is it? So I'll I'll be I'll be honest with you, right? If you had the choice, you have, of been. you have been honest. I love it. If you have the choice of two records, very similar in what they do, and you know what, you know what you think you're going to sell and all the rest of it. Um, and let's say they're two sort of new artists. They're cool records. They're not going to be, you know, um, hitting the charts that big, but they're cool records. But if one's got some action on social media and one hasn't, you'll go with the one who's got the action on social media. Just because there's a story, there's something to talk about. It might be their image. It might be the fact that they are DJing and they're recording it or they're promoting their own club nights or they just got something. They've got something going on to add to the story. Whereas if it's like a completely new name, this is the thing is the difference. You know, Big Bang Theory, when I did God's Child as BBT, nobody knew who, was that, who that was. It didn't matter. It was just a good record and people latched onto it. 
but that was because the way music industry was and the way it was when you came to promote music but now with online you've got to be online your presence must be there you must yeah. have a good strong presence so when someone fresh is coming to you and they're presenting you a, a hot record you want to make sure that they have all the social media statistics in the right places correct all the boxes yeah. well look i'm just saying they don't have to right if it's if it's like an amazing record if it's hands down an amazing record um like i'm pretty sure when i don't know fellow the grand did put your hands up for detroit i mean i'd never heard of him he might have been neither did i i never no. heard of either like he's a dj know. in 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 the netherlands right so he might have had a bit of name over there but none of us had heard of him when that record signed, that was like, you could just hear that was going to be a big record and it was signed. So, but, yeah. But, in that, but that was a transition where, say, you put a record on a Ministry of Sound, had the power to push the record all the way without an artistic. Oh, record. yeah, yeah. But before that, it had been signed by an independent label. You know, Mark Brown, he signed it for CR2. That's right. By a, an unknown name and then deal, did the deal with Ministry. But, um, I'm just saying that now, if we got a record it was amazing by an unknown person, we'd sign it. But it's just if it's a record that's good record, it's not going to smash it, but it's, it's decent. Um, but it's just if you've got the choice between two records, because you can't sign every record. Sometimes you've got to go, look, we've got enough records lined up. We're not going to sign another record to that imprint unless it's really killer. So <clears throat> that's the thing. If it's okay, it could just be timing. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just when you approach a label, it's like, depends how much they've got on the schedule. Um, depends if they put out quite a few records already that sounded like that, that didn't perform that well, if the music scene's changing. So I'm just saying that I think if you're making music, it does help if you've got some online activity. That's what I'd say. Good. No, because it's the truth, you know, cause you're in, yeah. you know, you're in a very important job, dude. I don't give a shit what you tell me. You're in a very important job. You got to produce hit records from time to time. It's just the way we roll. Oh, course, Same yeah. with, with me. I, I got to come up with records that make sense to keep us, to keep this machine going. Otherwise, you know, yeah. it's somewhat of commerciability. You know, yeah. a lot of people don't understand that, that are, are from our era or older than us. They don't really understand how important that social media is. They think, yes, it's still stuck on the old, set up that you make a great record that's just enough yes at one time it was and now it's not enough anymore and i try to do yeah. stories i try to explain this each and every time i talk to people that are sitting in those chairs like what you're sitting in <clears throat> that are making decisions that are important you know or you may sign the next 19 year old kid that's got the new sound you don't yeah. know you don't one know. thing lenny I, I i need to run to the men's room very quickly Run, I'll talk to the people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so so I, I have to shout out. I've been seeing everybody. Marsha Carr, love you, girl. Richard Earnshaw. Man, a lot of people. We talked about you too, Richard. We told, we told everybody that you are a muso. So you see how Seamus explains the sitting at defective records, how important it is that you still have to water and seed your social media. You know, do your postings one a day, like taking your vitamins. Like same way you take your vitamins, do one posting, do an important posting that's going to keep people communicating with you. It's always good to communicate with your audience. You're just starting out. Don't lose your ambition. If you're in this for the long haul, 
Don't lose steam. Keep pushing. Work hard. Because damn it, I am. I take my vitamins every day. <laughs> and I want you all to do something that is going to keep this going because we all need you to make dance music and keep that dance music alive around the world because without all of you there'd be none of us there'd be no reason to have it defected there'd be no reason to have a strictly rhythm there would have been no reason to have bbc radio one if there was no listeners see my point so we need to keep keep supporting this system that we're in and yes I agree with Seamus. There's been huge, huge quantum leap changes that happened over time. And we needed to embrace those changes. I'll be honest. I was one that pushed back at the change. I hated when the whole analog business, as I remember, pressing vinyl, pressing physical CDs. I've said this over and over, but I also embraced the social media. And I also, I also understand Spotify. And Spotify is not an easy thing to crack. It's a new thing. It's looking for the youngest of everybody that's around. You know, we all we're all pushing Spotify, and we all want to, you know, have our records streaming high levels because we all want to keep working in our fields and stay in it. And Seamus had to go to the loo and come back. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Seamus. We won't hold you too much longer that's because okay. we're almost going close to the two-hour mark. But yeah. I always ask this one big question. The older Seamus is talking to the young man Seamus. Okay. What's the mistake you tell him not to make? What would you tell him not to do? Um, <clears throat> you know, give him the advice he needs. Looking at the time capsule. Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> um, I think maybe, I don't know. I think there was a time when... Um, with Big Love, there was a time we were, I was approached by Ministry of Sound to do a label deal when it was all going really well. Um, so I want, you know, sometimes I sort of wonder if I should have done that deal because it just would have elevated the label and it would have been plugged into a bigger label. This was around 2004, I think. Um, so sometimes I, I wonder about that. Um, but also, I guess... If I was going to give myself some advice as on a on a broader level, it, it probably would have been to just be a bit more collaborative. So it was all great doing what I did with Big Love and <clears throat> doing my own thing, but I think at some time I probably should have done releases on other labels um, or collaborate collaborating with other people. Just just spread it out a little bit more. Have, just think a bit more laterally. It's very easy to be in your own lane. I think there's people today that do that. I can see people that. <clears throat> set up their own label and they're doing their own thing and they might have a certain amount of success, but I just think strength in numbers sometimes, and it's good to, you know, it's good to connect with other clicks and other um, communities and other labels or whatever, like just connecting with other people. And I think that's a good thing. Spread your wings a bit more. Amazing. Yeah. God damn shame. It's you're the man, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what here's the last most and final question you know we know you we know everything's on pause right now so what is the plans when this thing turns around and we're allowed to come out and play what is the plan of action that you're going to be doing as far as gigging as far as the record label what's coming up in front i know we're all dreaming share yeah. a little bit of that but where are we going <laughs> 
So, I mean, look, just put, talking from a personal point of view, you know, it's like, um, uh, I mean, actually, I did get an email yesterday with my, with a beef, you know, I've got some dates for a beefer next year. And um, we're doing four to the floor in room two at Eden on Friday. So the fact is in the main room, and then we've got four to the floor in the second room, <clears throat> which is obviously a bit more uh, um, old school classic house, I guess. Um, and that should have all been running this summer. So that's the first time I've actually had some dates come through, um, which is good. It's something to look forward to. And we've got defected Croatia as well. Um, but in amongst that, you know, on a personal level, I, I want to be making records again. I've just had like, I've just been stuck in this room for months. I couldn't get in the studio with vocalists. It's been really difficult. I've actually, one of the tracks I was working, I've had to get the vocalists to record the vocals in their own studio and send it to me, which I don't really like doing. I like to be in the studio with the, with the singer, right? But I just need to make music now and get stuff out. And also when I make records, <clears throat> especially the records I'm making, um, I did one on Big Love recently um, called A Better Place with Cappy Brown, you know, and um, making those records isn't cheap, you know, because I'm... I've got the vocalist to look after. I've got live musicians like brass, uh, guitar, whatever, strings, all that stuff. Um, so it costs money to make those records. And I've got records now that, you know, could be for Glitterbox. It could be for Big Love. Um, but it all takes investment. And it's that time and investment where normally you'd get to go and do the dig. You get the gigs and you get the benefit of, of um, running off the back of that. But now it's more like, making those, those records, but not even get to play them in the clubs. And I don't know when I'll be sort of DJing off the back of those records, but it's, I think it's important if you make music to keep putting music out there. Obviously, it's good to keep your profile up, but I think if you make music, that's what you do because you want to make music. And i am um, got some other tracks, some other records I'm working on where hopefully I think Mike Dunn's going to work on one of them. Um, so I'm just getting really busy now um, for me personally to make more music and invest in those records. So not just like throwaway records, just records that should stand the test of the time. You know, really good songs, really good music. Um, working with creative, talented people, which is what I've always done, you know? And I think come next year, um, I mean, what we're doing as a label is that we can't really put out those records that just, we used to call them weekend records. Those records that we used to go in the record shop, you know, they'd sell in the record shop for one or two weekends because they were just club tracks. And we can't, as a company, really be throwing out loads of tracks like that because <clears throat> there are no clubs open. That's the problem. There's yeah. no club scene. That's There's the no problem. club scene. So what we're trying to do now is put out music um, that's got more longevity to it, that's so, probably more song-based. So the Billy Porter record, the Shapeshifters record, how's that been doing for the company? Oh, yeah, amazing. I mean, like, obviously his profile is going through the roof. Um, and that was just bizarre because he just contacted us. He just said, I want to make a record on Glitterbox. Oh, we really? Like, yeah, that's how it happened. We didn't, he just, he just approached us. He, he heard some stuff on the label and loved it. And, you know, he had a record deal years ago, I think with BMG or someone. He had, a, uh, like, he was doing R&B um, a long time ago. And, um, yeah, I think he just felt like he wanted to be making music and we felt, felt like the right fit. And then we just said, right, we'll put him together with Shapeshifters and, um, and finally ready happened. It was just really quick. It was quite amazing. 
Um, so that record's done really well, and the pro his profile is amazing. We're still working the record. You know, we've just done um, Demeter and Paris has done these remixes, which are amazing. Um, adding his strings, and um, we're doing vinyl on that as well. So we just noticed that um, what we've noticed as a company is where people aren't spending money going out clubbing, they're actually spending money on records and on merchandise. So now our our sales when it comes to vinyl is just gone. It's just ridiculous. Um, so we're doing more of that now. We're not even on certain releases. We're not doing CDs like certain albums. We're just doing vinyl. Um, that's where the interest is. So we just noticed the way the music, the, mo the music model has changed with the way that we're doing stuff. So downloads are obviously selling less because there's less people DJing. Um, streaming has just gone ridiculous because everyone's streaming music. And they're spending money on uh, merchandise and <clears throat> and vinyl. And until we can be doing events again, which won't be until next year, we just got to focus on the music. Now, is that providing that? Because Spain said they will not open their big clubs until they have vaccination. Is that is this just per maybe question mark, or is this we're just going on with the hopes of next year? Yeah, I I think we just got to be in a really different place. Um, before the big events take place. I mean, obviously, if we do defective creation, you're talking about 5,000 people, you know? Right. Um, and do something like that without having some sort of control. Yeah, I think things have got to change a lot before then, but we're, we're hopeful and optimistic about that. Um, but, you know, that's one part of our company. One part of our company is events, the other part is music, and we're music-led first. So it all comes from the music. We wouldn't have events if it wasn't the music. So we just need to focus on the music and put out stuff that's going to last and um you know like for example i signed an album from um miguel mix which is coming on sulfuric deep and we you know they've never done an album on sulfuric before but the music he's making it is kind of it's listening music it's stuff that's going to stream it's stuff that gets played in restaurants or bars and right. it's, it's luxury music yeah so you know when i heard this album i was like right that's it's, it's amazing oh, and he's got done yeah, Sorry. done. He's got some it's amazing. No brainer. It's a no brainer. No, no brainer. So that was this is like the perfect time because he's like, oh, he was when I was talking to him about it a few months ago. He's like, you sure it's really laid back? I said, this is the perfect time for you to release that music because yep. there is no there's no club scene. <clears throat> so we're kind of making records that work like that as well. Of, especially um, certain new disco stuff that's a bit slower, like 115, 116 BPM. Um, again, it's that stuff that lends itself more to being listening, listened to, you know, it's not just about the club. So, um, but we're not trying to put out overtly commercial, um, poppy records. I mean, we, we do get stuff sent to us now by producers that normally make underground music and they're making stuff that's really pretty commercial. Um, and not, not the commercial that we would do, not that we do stuff that that's commercial, but. I think people are um, trying to change the way, the way they make music because of what's going on. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I know. Just, you know what? We just got to hope to pray that we can get this back soon. Because the other yeah. question everybody's asking is, when this is over, who's coming back? You know, because the longer <laughs> this goes, the harder yeah. it gets to people. They have to, you know, I'm, I'm reading every day. And I know you see it too. People writing musicians are leaving the field. There's yeah. a lot of different parts of our industry that the restaurant slash entertainment field has been decimated due yeah. to 
the situation of COVID. So how long do you think people can stay waiting and hoping that they get yeah, different jobs, you know? That, that is difficult. I mean, people are going to be falling by the wayside, you know. Um, there will be some casualties, yeah. And I think that people who are making music, I just think if you make music, if you're a producer, you have to just diversify now, which is what a lot of people probably should have done before, which is like, yeah, look, make those club records. Well, why, why not try and make records that will also stream well, that might have a little bit more commercial factor to them. Um, you know, if you're making tech house bangers. Yeah, and you have no dance floor. There's nothing going on, right? So you need to start thinking, do you want to make a living out of this? You might have to start diversifying, even if you set up another moniker or you produce with people or, you know, you try and make music that's going to sync to get into the world of licensing and TV and that sort of thing. So, or, you know, there's people I know that are producing music that they also master for people or they'll do some ghost production or, you know, vocal production, just like if you're a person that makes music and can produce and you've got those skills, then obviously you can diversify. If you're a DJ that's got no studio skills and normally pays an engineer to make your records for you, it's a difficult time. And I know you're right, brother. Yeah. Well, we got an election happening very soon. Our higher ups are telling us that we have a miracle drug coming right before election for right. vaccination. <laughs> and I kind of laugh at it. I try to say it with such, without laughing, but it kind of is funny. If a vaccination happens, are you taking it, Seamus? Um, I don't. I have to. I've Conversation. Gone, uh, Everybody's asking right now. Yeah, I, do you know what? I kind of take each day as it comes because that's just the way I am. Like the way, the way this has all been going on, I've not been sort of like hoping that the clubs would open. I mean, when this first happened in March, I didn't think, oh, you know, fingers crossed we'll be in a beaver this summer. I just thought, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, right. we're not going to be in a beaver. So I tend to look at the worst case scenario and anything else that happens is a bonus. So when we talk about a vaccination, I'm probably quite sceptical about it happening in the near future. So I kind of think if it happens, it's a bonus. And if it happens, I probably would take it. Yeah. If it's, if it's, if it's better for everybody else, if we all take it and it helps the situation, I think it's a good thing. Here's my problem, bro. I got to travel 10 hours to get to you in a tin can. So yeah. I got to be with people sitting inside an airplane. That's to, just to come to you. And then we can go to Ibiza. Yeah. I don't know what the hell to do. I don't know what to do. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm like you really think I'm going to take in November? They're coming out with the first ones? Are you out of your mind? No, not November. Maybe wait. I'll have to wait to see. But we can only Godspeed and pray that yeah. this will turn around very quickly. Because I need to, for all of us to be able to get through this because we need this industry to go on and on and on. There's no way this is going to end here. It ain't going to end now. I invested too much like you. We've all invested too much of our money, time, love, energy, sweat, blood, and tears for this thing to die. Yeah. I got more hit records left in me, God damn it. And I know you do too. There's no way. I can't thank you enough, Mr. Seamus Haji. You are a gentleman, a scholar. <laughs> you are a road warrior. You taught us well. You picked up some great records in your time. You've done some amazing things. More than I even realized. And thank you for sharing all that. Um, thank you. My greatest accomplishment is my daughter. 
My greatest yeah. love is my daughter. I guess you would feel the same about children too. Oh your God, kids, yeah. Your kids are, are your diamonds. I know that. Yeah. You know, you've always been a great father. 100%. Are they following, any of them following in your footsteps? That was the last question I had. Well, funnily enough, because I'm not that sort of person to force my kids. I always wanted them to find their own way. So, um, you know, my oldest son is into music, but he was kind of into music, but also into film. Okay. I was like, okay, listen, maybe go the film way. So he's kind of gone into doing film studies and he's very much into politics. The younger son is very much into maths and... Um, that's he's a, he's a maths boffin. Um, but my daughter, the oldest one, who's 28, um, I used to say to her years ago, like, listen, you know, if you want to, if you want to get into the music industry, I'm sure I could maybe introduce you oh, to some people. Her mother's a DJ. Her father's yeah. a DJ. I know Marsha. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So she, but she was like, no, oh, you know, I'm just doing my thing. And up, it was it was last year. She said to me, oh, dad, you know, I want to get into the music industry. And that was because she just organically had got into reviewing um, albums and music. So she's very much into like rap, UK hip hop, grime and all that stuff. And um, she just started doing these review programs on her own or with other people. And she went on different channels on YouTube. So she's very she's really into it. Um, I said, OK, go for it. And then she just she she plugged away to try and get a job. And now she's. um, marketing assistant at warner records in the uk yeah so i'm like i'm super proud of her because she she took her a long time to get that job and she just got an award oh, from the official, the official charts in the uk for a number one album for marketing um there's an artist called nines and he's got the, the number one so album what's the, the number UK. one album now what how many what's how many units or how many streams i can't remember how many units but the award she got it's not like i mean i've got discs on my wall here we've which we'll all have from sales but these aren't this isn't sales based this award she's got is the fact that it's just based on the fact that the album went to number one i'm not sure on the figures i'd have to research that okay. um well, but I, I'm, 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 I'm super proud of her um <clears throat> but you know with all my kids it's, I, I want them to be happy and 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 follow their own path you know but it's just coincidental that She's finally got into that, and she's at, she's at a good place. Music moguls, we all create. <laughs> keep on going, keep on. You're Seamus's daughter. Oh wow! Yeah, she no, does like, look like me. I mean, I saw I saw Simon's kid, Lewis. I was like, look at this. I remember when these kids when, they, when his wife was pregnant. It's like, wow. Yeah. They're growing up. They're they're serving me a beer. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> holy smoke! I'm like, wow. Yeah. When I went to, you know hung out with everybody, I'm like. Man, as time went by, I know. Damn, time. This and that's the thing. It just doesn't stop. No, it just doesn't stop. But anything else you want to shout out before I say ta-ta for now? Um, because you covered yes, a lot. You covered it. Yeah, we covered a lot, man. No, I'm, all, all I'll end up is I'll just start promoting records. Turn the um, turn the camera to the to the discs. Let people see the discs. All right. Yeah, yeah. Show everyone. Well, that's some of them. That's the records, but what about the sales awards, the gold sales? And the oh, sales they're up here. Sure, everybody. They're up. Can you see them? There's oh, some wow. Of them. Have there's a look, everyone. Soak it up, mate. Soak it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look. I mean, there's sort of like Roger Sanchez that went to number one, then there's... Oh, another up. chance, right? Another yeah. chance record? Yeah, because we all worked on that record at the time. That was our first number one and defected. Yeah. So, um, a few discs. 
on the wall. That's the wall of ego. Blood, ego. The wall of ego. It's yeah. brawn. It's strength. <laughs> <laughs> People are sending you hearts like crazy. I'm watching the hearts come up. Oh, that's good. So next week we got Mark Lower from France. Mark Lower. Oh, we got Mark Lower from France. Yeah. We got some amazing, amazing talent coming on every Wednesday. Same place for damn sake. It's at seven o'clock. I tell you all week. I'm on I am monotonous with this. I tell you all week. Seven o'clock, tune in. Don't come at eight. You lose an hour and you gotta come back and rerun the show. People coming in late. Oh, I missed half of it. Shame on you. Seamus was important. Should have been there at seven o'clock. <laughs> but again, Mark Lowe, I want to thank Seamus Haji. Good luck to him and his children. I'm okay. glad to hear his daughter is marketing executive at Warner's. That's an amazing title to have. And Lord knows where that's going to go. You don't know. She could be someday chairman of the board. You never know. <laughs> now, our friends have gone from the record shop to become the MDs of some of these labels, as we yeah. all know. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. It's crazy, but... Okay, Mr. Seamus Haji, have a great night and thank you again. And please keep us in the loop of all the new productions and remixes you're doing because right here I'm playing all over the radio, still rocking shows, simulcasting and making sure I'm still playing. The first most important job that I do is promote and promote good music. All right, I will send you some music. Thank you, Seamus. All and right. Let me ask you for Miguel Mix because we want to get Miguel Mix on here too. So I'm going to ask you for that. I have Karen ask you for that. Okay. He's a All lovely right. chap. Yeah, man. Yes. Yeah, I would love to get him on. Thank you again. Have a okay. great night, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you all next week for Mark Lower. Take care. Good night.